try and find something that makes you happy. And if it doesn't make you happy, then just don't fucking do it. In this episode, we sit down with Aaron Lorich, a former Army Special Operations medic who gets into deep and powerful topics from his career in the military and where his life has taken him since. From dealing with an opioid addiction, taking care of his wife's medical needs, to finding peace along the Georgia coastline, this is an incredible episode we can all learn from. Real stories, real heroes, for a real cause. This is Never Left Behind, the podcast. All right, Aaron, what's going on, man? It's uh, great to have you on. Um, I know that uh, personally, and I know Dan, we've been waiting to have you on our podcast for quite a while now, ever since we've met up in person and photographed and interviewed you for the book. So thank you for being on our show. You're welcome, Bo. Dan, thank you for having me on. It's nice to be here. I'm glad we finally got the schedules worked out. Yeah, so I want to kind of start where everything you know, is going to open up, and we have a lot to talk about with your story, and I want to get things started. And, and where did you grow up, and what made you decide to join the Army? Well, I grew up everywhere. Uh, I, I just I always tell people I'm an American. I, I grew up in an Army family, and uh, so I, I think I was born right outside Fort Campbell, you know, about six months old when we left there, you know, like three or four years outside of D.C., Northern Virginia area. Um, man, and you, you look through the list, I probably got North Carolina a couple of times, Pennsylvania, Fort Lewis, Washington. Um, you know, there's there's probably a couple others in there I'm forgetting. But so I kind of grew up moving all over the place and, you know, seeing the military every day and, and basically you know most of those places we lived you know especially in the earlier years were all on military bases so you're kind of surrounded by it 24 7 you know like if you're on a if you're on base when the flag goes down at like 5 15 reveille right like mm-hmm. or uh excuse me re- excuse me retreat i'm sorry it's been so long um you know like if, if someone saw me not stopping for the flag going down like that got back to my dad right so like you, you kind of grew up around some of that and i remember always being like never going to join the army, never going to do it. And, uh, but I was, I was kind of one of those drifter, drifter kids. Like maybe, maybe the potential, you know, they might have some potential there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I just never really like applied myself in school. never really found my direction. Like I never found that thing that, that I was into, you know, I, I, I am envious of people that, you know, when they're in like seventh grade, they kind of know what they want to do with the rest of their life. And they, they go after it. Like I had just, that, that moment never came to me. That's, that's so, pretty interesting. And my, yeah. Yeah. Um, um, you know, and I'd seen my brother go to college. Right. And so like, I'd, you know, experienced a little bit of that and, uh, <clears throat> you know, I, I did not know what I wanted to do. So not wanting to waste time, you know, money, uh, resources, all that. I said, okay, well, I'm going to join the army. Uh, you know, maybe it had work out. You know, I had, I had heard some things about like special forces medics that sounded kind of appealing. Um, I had done some EMT work right around that time. And, uh, that kind of like seemed like a natural extension. So I was like, okay, well maybe I'll go in the army and then, you know, if it works out and I decide to stay in, that can be something to, to shoot for. Right. Like, yeah, it can't be all that bad. And so, but I told my dad, like, I'm not, I'm not going to Fort Bragg. Like, 
I didn't want to, I'd grown up on and off at Fort Bragg, went to high school in Fayetteville, North Carolina there and just really didn't want to, uh, to go back. But, you know, obviously I ended up there for a while anyway, but, um, so I joined the Rangers and, and that was my goal. And I said, well, you know, maybe again, if like, I'm only planning on doing like a, I think I did a four year enlistment and had very, you know, had the intention of just kind of figuring life out and then going on to college or whatever that next step would, was going to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, the SF medic was kind of a, a backstop thing in there. And I thought, well, at the end of the day, at, you know, at that time you couldn't really just enlist and go SF, right. They didn't have that expert program they do nowadays. And, um, I thought, well, all, you know, SF people like infantry kind of based and if you're going to do that, why not do the best and, and go, go be a ranger. So sure. Um, so I, I did, uh, you know, I went through, through airborne school, rift and all that and got to, um, uh, first battalion 75th and, uh, was a, was an infantryman there and went all the way, you know, team leader through, or excuse me, private up through team leader and, uh, and, you know, in first bat. Um, and then I had the ability to, to transition, um, into, into doing something else, uh, and was able to become a medic. And so that was, um, that was pretty cool. Man, your, uh, your childhood was very much like mine. I grew up, uh, an Air Force brat, I guess, and, uh, born in Texas, but lived in, I think, I don't know, eight different states, different parts of the states, different countries. Okay. Wow. <laughs> so I, I know that lifestyle and I was exactly like you. I did not want to join the military and, uh, it took until I moved to Bo's hometown of Yucca Valley and actually live in there full time mm-hmm. where I was like, I got to get the hell out of this place. I can't be here any longer. And that's when I decided to join. Yeah, that was going to, that's, yeah. that's what I think is interesting about all that is I feel like if you grow up in a military family, you're either a going to be totally for going in or you're going to be opposite and be like, no, fuck no, I don't want to join. Yeah, no, I, I, I get that, you know, and I, and, I, and obviously in my like adolescent years and, and as I got into my teenage years, you know, you do the rebellious thing and I'm not, I'm not going, but I mean, I, I, I saw my first parachute jump when I was probably six you know, maybe, maybe five or six, you know, I can, I can remember seeing some, some of that stuff when I was six or seven. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure we have a picture somewhere of me in the harness that you wear when you do the 34 foot tower. Right. Dan, you know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. Yep. And, uh, I, I, I'm pretty sure I was probably like eight years old when I first got flown out of a, a 34 foot tower. So the writing was kind of on the wall, <laughs> you know, way back then that like, this kid's going to have his name on his shirt. He's going to jump out of planes for a living. Jeez. So. so what even motivated you to become a special operations medic then? Um, well, uh, I, I'd say a combination of things. I had been a lifeguard and, and taken an EMT class before I joined the Army. So there was always a little bit of that interest. And then just having been in the in the community and being around these medics and, and, and ranger medics are some of the, I mean, absolute finest medics. The, the world you know has ever has ever seen and produced i mean they're they're absolutely incredible and and, and even the things they're doing nowadays compared to to when i was there is just it's just marvelous but mm-hmm. i see our what our medics do like i saw that what kind of you know you, you when you're a private right you you don't know anything except like the three or four guys to your left and right your your world is so small and and as as you you know kind of kind of get past that fear of screwing up and start learning and developing you can kind of see 
a little bit more of the picture around you. Maybe not the, the big, big picture, right? But like you, you start to get more of it. And just seeing what the medics did and how they interacted, that really appealed to me. And then plus what they brought to the to the fight. And, uh, you know, and I'd seen a little bit of a progression, right? Like I came in in, in 99, so I saw a little bit of a, of a pre-GWAT mentality, right? Then yep. we get into the to the war and so the mentality, the focus, uh, you know, the culture of that organization pretty much shifted. Um, and medics were, were right there with that shift. And, and you know, obviously Ranger medics were, were, you know, basically on the forefront of a lot of that. And um, so that, that really motivated me. And, you know, the fortuitous thing was, is I had a, a squad leader at the time that told me I was too talkative and, He's like, you know what? I'm basically I'm going to punish you, and so he made me do one of these like soldier of the month boards, and you know you got to get all dressed up, and you know, <laughs> you know, and you're like, oh, you got, I mean, I got to like shine my boots, and you know, like, you got to put your spits and starches on, or maybe, maybe even class A's. I don't, I don't remember now, but anyway, I did well, and so I did like a quarter, and uh, and ended up basically I went all the way to Eustisock, so I won regiment, and I was a regimental soldier of the year. And oh, wow. I remember thinking like, there's no way I'm going to be able to do this. Yeah. Well, that was actually really cool. That was a, uh, I mean, let's, let's, let's go stay right up front. It's not like it was the best ranger competition or anything, but it was a couple of days of like, you know, PT tests, land nav, um, you know, maybe had to do like, uh, I think we had to do a marksmanship call, uh, you know, so you get a couple of rounds to zero and then you have to shoot a table and, uh, uh, what else was there? There might've been a couple other things, but you know, then it culminated with, with a, you know, class A's and you're sitting in front of all the battalion sergeant majors and, uh, they, they start asking you all these different questions and scenarios and military history and, mm-hmm. you know, just technical nomenclature and all that good stuff. And at one point in there, there's that standard, like, well, where do you see yourself in five years? And, uh, you know, a little, just kind of thinking out loud, well, I mean, either not going to be in the army or I'm, I'm going to be a, a special forces medic and there was this collective like silence you know they're all just staring at me and i'm like oh shit you know <laughs> they come out and they're like hey uh what if you could be a medic and still stay in the ranger battalion and i was very honest and i was like i didn't freaking know that existed like that would be that would be awesome like mm-hmm. you know and by then like you kind of drank the kool-aid enough to want to stay in regiment and uh you know, I, I wasn't ready to do the Green Beret thing. Didn't really want didn't, that. Didn't really appeal to me at that point. You know, I wanted to stay in my roots, right? Regiment's awesome. And so, one thing led to another, and we did uh, this. This happened maybe sometime in '02. Uh, we, de- we did an Afghanistan deployment. Uh, we turned around from the Afghanistan deployment, and uh, they. Um, basically went into Iraq within within the next like month, month and a half or so after getting back from Afghanistan for the invasion in 03. And I think I, I, was, I had, had gone to Sierra school in that like month, you know, we had like six weeks that we were back between wars and I decided to go to Sierra school in that time frame. And um, when I got back from, from Iraq, you know, I was sitting down with our PA and we were doing, you know, whatever the standard post is, post a post appointment, we do a post appointment health assessment. And, you know, talk about what what you've been exposed to, what, you know, some of the things you've seen and done, that, that deal. And he sees my name and he looks at me and he's looking back at the paperwork and he's like, he knows me, right? And he, he's like thinking of his name. He goes, I've, I've seen your name recently. And then he goes, oh, do you still want to be a medic? 
And I said, well, yeah, absolutely. And he goes, good, because your orders came through. You know, you leave in like <laughs> next month or, you're, you know, you're going up to brag to oh, report damn. to Porsche. And it was all like very, like out of the blue, right? Like no one had ever mentioned it to me since that board meeting. And that was like six, seven months ago. So, you know, then you had to tell your team leader, uh, or excuse me, your, um, your squad leader and your platoon sergeant that, uh, <laughs> you know, that you're leaving the, you're leaving to go be a medic. Um, which pretty much means, Dan, you can back me up on this. It means you're a quitter, right? Yep. Like if, you're, <laughs> oh, man. If, you're, if you're, if you're leaving the platoon, I mean, you might as well be going to be a Marine. It doesn't matter that you're going to be a medic and you're going to come right back to battalion. Um, so yeah, that's what I did. I, I, um, uh, I, I left maybe not on the best of terms, but, um, did the, the, the special operations combat medic course at, at Fort Bragg for the six months you know, paramedic, uh, advanced tactical practitioner course that they run there. And then basically came right back to 175, um, uh, did a couple of deployments as an HHC medic, just kind of filling in uh, where where needed. And then did uh, just about two years as a company senior medic in ACO. Oh, wow. So is it a uh, totally offhand question, but is it because I've been educating myself more and, and doing more research on obviously the extensive training that goes into becoming a ranger, but is it uh, true what they say that coal range is the hardest part? <laughs> I, I actually, uh, there's a, oh man, I actually have a t-shirt that says, um, it says, come, come stay with us. And then it has a, um, uh, it says coal range campground and it's got a little picture <laughs> with the, the orange range sign that says coal range on it. And the bottom says where Woodline is only a, Excuse me. Where you know you got to edit this. Where, um, where firewood is only a wood line away. That's awesome. Where did you get that? Dan wants so, that shirt. <laughs> I'm gonna. I'll give a shout out to American Trigger Pullers. Um, oh man, that's awesome. They're, uh, they're, they're a veteran-owned small business down in Colleen, Texas, um, and and they've got a couple rangers on staff, and they do a lot of like. Ranger T-shirts, prints, mugs. Uh, they even they do they, the range. They got some Ranger panties in the inventory. So you know, if it's been a while since you've worn some, you can certainly get some of those. Uh, but they're a they're a cool company. I got I got a couple other other T-shirts. Yeah, that's actually where I got my uh, or Tanya got my decanter from. Mm, the okay. Ranger, Ranger decanter. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yep. Yeah, I've seen those. And they got some nice stuff. Yeah. So what is, uh, what all goes into coal range? Cause obviously I've just watched like YouTube videos on like a quick, like 10 minute, but it looks extensive. Well, I, I would say what, what goes into coal range is motivation. Um, you know, you have to want to be there and you have to want to get through and they give you about every opportunity to, to leave, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, and you're, I, I think this is a good tie in to like, you know, some of the traumas that, 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 uh, you know, veterans in general, but with, since we're talking about core range and rangers and saw, um, it's forced into you that you're a volunteer. You volunteered. We're not a draft army anymore, right? Like we all volunteer to join the army. Then we all volunteer to throw ourselves out of perfectly good airplanes. And then we all volunteer to be rangers. So that's, you know, you're the three time volunteer right there. And so at any step along that way, if you don't want to be in a ranger unit anymore, you don't have to be. You just tell somebody you don't want to be there, and they will make that happen mm. really, really quick for you. Um, and at Cole Range, there's no exception. So, you, you know, it's basically just how miserable can we make these people? And then, you know, there's, there's always a good fire. 
<laughs> and so the whole hit the wood line thing means you you've got to run about a you know, about a football field. Um, you collect, you know, a, a, a you know you want to get a big piece, right? Because you don't want to be the person that comes back with the smallest piece. But if you're getting the biggest piece, but you're not making it back because it's just too dang heavy, you know, you don't want to be last. So then there's like a you got to find that happy medium ground where you're you know, you're not really spotlighting yourself and you're just kind of being a gray man, but, yeah. uh, you, you're, you're getting fuel for the fire. And then yep. there's all these promises of donuts and hot coffee and a sleeping bag and a warm fire. And man, it doesn't matter if it's like, I mean, I went through rip in uh, February, maybe like January into February or something like that. Um, you know, hot, you know, fire fireplace in Georgia. I mean, it's in Georgia, but I mean, it's it cold. Oh yeah. And uh, yeah, they give you all the all the opportunity in the world to to throw your arm up and say, "I don't want to be here." So, you know, as you progress through, and that that stays true. Um, you know, basically every day you're in you're in the regiment, and uh, I, I think that's one reason that people have a hard time coming forward when they have issues, is because they think in one way, mm-hmm. at least some people is, "Hey, I I." I asked for this. Mm-hmm. I I came into this organization to do these things. You, you know, like I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of cogs in the big wheel that is the army, right? And it takes a whole lot of people to make it run. So the army is not about soft. The army is not about like support and all these different organizations out there. It takes all of them to really make it work. Um, but you feel like when you are in like something like the Ranger Regiment, you say, Hey, I didn't sign up to just sit in an office and help be a cog and make the army run. Like I, I signed up to be at the forefront, um, you know, and you're doing the things that need to be done out there. Yeah. Uh, and so then, you, then you have a hard time and almost a little bit of a guilty conscience wanting to kind of raise your hand and say like, Hey, maybe I'm struggling with some of these things that we've been doing over the last, you know, how, I mean, I would say years, but for some people it doesn't take years. You know, it can be just a couple of incidents. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a difficult place to be. Cause like you said, I mean, uh, when you said you decided to be a medic in Ranger Regiment, it's like the mentality is if you, if you say there's an issue or, you know, for the most part, they were good with family issues, but when it came to like personal issues or wanting to do something else, um, there's this, this mentality of, well, you, you volunteered to be here. You, you went through all these things to be here. We've invested so much time and energy into you and now you're going to quit. And yep. that mentality has, has shifted a little bit. I think they've, they've been trying to do a really good job in special operations as a whole to kind of train, change that mindset. Um, but yeah, that's, that's absolutely spot on how it, how it was. And hopefully it's, it's better now. Yeah, it, I I I, agree, I would agree completely, and I think that you're right. It is it is getting better, it, and uh, there's there's been some some things implemented. I think that over the course of the 20 years we've been at war, and and I think it bears note that the Ranger Regiment has been deployed every day. Yep. <laughs> I, I mean, every every step of the way, that unit has been deployed um, in in one way, shape, or another. At, at the very forefront of, of wherever our response has been, um, you know, and it's, it's a, it's a disproportionate, uh, you know, when you look at the numbers of people that are actually out there, um, 
and doing some of those uh, those, those high risk missions. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Definitely been there. So I, I, I kind of wonder because you went on a few rotations, uh, just as you know, a line guy um, working your way up to a team leader and then a, a medic. What was it, especially the mindset and the idea? Because I, since you know what it's like to kick in doors and clear rooms and be with the team was it difficult to kind of like you know have the reins on yourself and be like no i gotta stand back with the platoon sergeant i can't chase you know into rooms and things like that or or was it more of like you knew what your place was and everything it was it was actually interesting um a little a little bit of both um you know i had a deployment as a um my first deployment gun, my, excuse me, my first deployment, I was a senior gunner. Uh, so I was, you know, I don't think I'd actually pinned on corporal or anything, but was the, you know, the senior gunner in the weapon squad, 240 mm. gunner. Mm. Um, and that was my first trip to Afghanistan, right? So that was, that was Wild West days back in the, you know, first, first year or two. Um, and then went into uh, the invasion of Iraq as, you know, uh, a fire team leader. So definitely seen it from, from that angle. And then being able to take the step back as a medic, it totally, it just suited my personality much better. Um, I was probably, I don't know, I was very awkward in, in a line, in a line platoon. Uh, I was never the aggressive door kicker alpha mentality. You know what I mean? Like I love being a saw gunner. I thought that was awesome. Um, being a 240 gunner was, was, was pretty sweet. You know, I, I'm, I'm a support by fire position. Like, let me just throw down. I'm not a great marksman anyway. So like, let's just, <laughs> let's just throw down some area fire. Let's just blanket it, you know, the objective. Um, so being a medic really just allowed me to focus on where I needed to be. And I think it gave, having had the experience doing those other jobs, I had a good appreciation of some of that situational awareness that you need on the battlefield. And when I would even, you know, uh, when I was, when, right when I came back and did a deployment as a medic, it was with my old company. And so oh, wow. a lot of those squad leaders and platoon sergeants were like, oh, hey, we need a guy to run a truck. Can you cover a blocking position? Or, you know, can you take the west side of this target and, you know, do an overwatch? I mean, they were like, like they were basically like tasking me over a fire team to kind of be like, you know, that senior NCO I see on the corner or something. And so, most medics, you know, aren't, aren't going to get that opportunity right off the bat. Um, and uh, so I think that was helpful having had that previous line experience that allowed me to be a little bit more versatile on the battlefield. Like I wasn't hesitant, um, you know, for to, to ask people to do things, you know, like when you have to take, you know, you, trigger's got to be pulled, trigger's got to be pulled, right? Like you, you make that call. Sometimes a little, little more junior people might be a little more hesitant, but uh no, I, I think it was it was a nice. Um, I'm trying to think of a way to phrase it. It was helpful having had that background. Yeah. Um, it gave me a little bit more latitude, a little more flexibility, um, and so rather than getting looked at like a medic, which is obviously a force multiplier, you're getting looked at like maybe in a little bit of a different light. Like maybe they had that recency bias of me being a a team leader, um, and and hey, I, I I took full advantage of it, you know. And, got to do some missions and be uh, be part of some different task forces that um you know maybe I, I i otherwise would not have been able to to take part in but having had that you know that previous line experience you know was kind of a, a real plus in a lot of people's eyes mm-hmm. yeah i i could definitely see it be a huge benefit i mean you have junior medics that you know come straight from 
initially enlisting, going to um, airborne school, going to RIP or RASP now, and then going straight to uh, Sockham, it's like kind of crazy that you would go through so much schooling and then come to regiment and then you're this junior medic and everybody's supposed to look to you for advice and all this stuff. And a lot of times either they get pushed around or they figure it out real fast that they kind of have to be, I don't know, I guess a little bit more commanding with their presence just as the medic. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great, that's a great assessment. And, And it really, they do get, you know, they're getting thrown to the wolves basically. And they're, you know, they're, they're coming in as the, as the new guy and, and a medic is in a unique position where you're going to have to gain the, the, the trust and the confidence of, of your teammates, um, because they're going to come to you with things, uh, that they might not want other people to know they're, you know, I mean, it's the army, but we still do maintain a level of patient confidentiality usually, you know, for the most part, I'd say. Um, and, and, and the guys respect that and they, and they deserve that. Right. So mm-hmm. it normally happens about a week to 10 days into a deployment and the guy comes to you and he's like, you know, it burns and you're like, Oh, okay. I got you. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> you, you have to be able to handle those, uh, with, with some modesty and not like immediately turn around and use this guy as an example of the platoon and, you know, have like a whole safe sex conversation. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you don't, you don't want to throw them under the bus like that. I mean, um, I could hear your wife laughing in the background <laughs> on that one. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. She's, if only, if only she knew all the stories. Well, she's, she's probably heard, let's it. Just she's get probably it. heard enough to know. I was just going to say, let's just get it out there as a medic in a male dominated infantry any any infantry thing you've seen a lot of penises. I you know what I've brought up a few people on and off the ring. <laughs> <laughs> it's just the nature of the job. Unfortunately, that's probably I don't know. You, it you, might be the worst you, worst part of the job, or maybe just, not that we're bad. You just you just have to accept it. And <laughs> rangers being rangers and doing what rangers do, um, you know. Rangers are going to hit the target, you know. It, <laughs> it 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 might not be a perfect bullseye, but they're going to hit the target. And uh, some some of those set their sights a little bit more off than others. And <laughs> you know, as medics, you're there to help them deal with the consequences of their actions. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. So they need a tighter grouping. But you know, medics are also there to. Uh, you know, help them through their ankle or shoulder rehab or, uh, help them with their back pain. Um, you know, help, uh, maybe talk to them about like their grandma's diabetes or the fact that their dad has hypertension and was just diagnosed with a new, you know, a new medicine and they're kind of freaked out about that. Um, and you know, and, and, and in some cases you're there to, uh, you're, you're there to, to be that therapist. Um, you know, so they, I was just about to they say, feel yeah. comfortable confiding in, in medics and, you know, you can be a decent sounding board for people sometimes and, mm-hmm. you know, and, and maybe it's, maybe people have come to you for like a more of a physical therapy issue and on, and on deployment, you know, like ranger medics can find themselves out there as, as, as really the senior medical provider for like a lot of square miles, right? Mm-hmm. Like they're basically they'd be considered like the rural doctor in a, uh, in, in some of our communities out here and, and, and maybe have as much training in some cases 
you know, depending on where in the world you are. And so, you, you know, we have some tools and, and, you know, you get like a little ultrasound or some of the, you know, like a tens unit kind of set up and you can, you can get in there and the, the guys just have like 20 minutes to lay in there and yeah, the machine helps and they're getting some of that, but at the same, it's like a 20 minute break where they're just completely relaxed and they start talking and mm-hmm. some people, you know, have more to talk about than others. And that medic has to be, uh, you know, mature and, and able to sit there and kind of, you know, take that all in and, and respond in kind. Yeah. It's a, you know, you said it very early on, but, uh, I, I don't think people realize even, I don't know, maybe a lot of medics around, around, you know, the army and stuff like that, or people have served elsewhere, but, uh, how much training a ranger medic goes through is, is pretty extensive. Like a lot of people don't realize that they have to go through, um, like retraining. I think it's every training cycle or maybe it's every other training cycle. Um, and oftentimes they even go to a trauma, um, like ER, mm. And oftentimes it was in Atlanta when I was in and they would go, yeah. they would go there so that they could see what gunshot wounds were like and how to treat them and what to do and all this kind of stuff. And it's kind of a sad reality in, in America, but, um, that's where they would send them to, to oh, get wow. trained on all that. Yeah. I remember when they started the, 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 the Grady rotations, um, those, those were actually, a, a, a by all accounts, a pretty good, a pretty good deal. Um, now, uh, you know, there's a, there's a lot of medics that, that do that. Um, you know, we encourage it would, later in my career, you know, we, we had opportunities to go to some other hospitals and, and in even military hospitals, um, because you're, there's just so many different skill sets that you have. Um, and the only way that you can realistically, realistically maintain those skills is by getting into, you know, that clinical setting and spending time in the OR. Um, so maybe, maybe it's airways, right? Maybe you're, you're focusing on airways and you go to an OR in the morning and then, you know, they have a, a certain number of cases and you can just get with like a CRNA or maybe an anesthesiologist or, and you just rotate room to room and you're dropping all the airways or maybe you're, you drop one airway and then you're staying with that patient and you're running all their anesthesia and, mm. and, you know, working out their drips and, you know, a lot of stuff's weight based, right? And you, I mean, got somebody's life you know you're basically breathing for them at some point and you know the best way to get that is, is by doing it and so we would line up those rotations um but yeah med- medics have there's a lot of stuff that goes into it and we focus on the trauma right because they're ranger you know and we, when we think ranger i don't know why we just think range, we just think violence and trauma <laughs> for some reason um but there's a ton of uh you know, people forget about the sick call aspect that they go through and the, and really the, the sports and the physical medicine side of things. Um, and so they do get a lot of training in, you know, think about everything your basic paramedic out there has to know. Um, but then now start dealing with, you know, uh, wound care and, and antibiotics and, in, you know, infections and colds and flus and, you know, the stomach bugs that you get from being deployed and getting exposed to things. Um, and knowing like which antibiotic to give and which not to give. And mm. so, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot to learn, but then like at the same time, it's, that's why they do have a, you know, every two years that we got to go through a course to, um, you know, refresh and maintain a lot of that stuff. Yeah. Aaron, um, I'm kind of curious because I know you've mentioned to me personally that, you know, you and your wife have horses and, and being a combat medic has that transitioned into, you understanding how to take care of, of livestock and wildlife, like working with horses and giving the right, you know, doses, if you have to give them shots or vaccinations or anything like that. 
Yeah, I, 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 I think so. Um, you know, uh, soccer medics get exposed to it a little bit, but people that go back through, you know, like your, your 18 deltas that go through the, uh, the full Q course, um, when they do the medical portion, they do soccer, but then they also have, you know, SFMS, the special forces medical sergeant course. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of your, your SEAL corpsmen, um, somebody like your Marine Raider, um, they, they have corpsmen assigned to them. Uh, those individuals are coming, um, and they go through SFMS, but they call it, uh, the special operations independent duty corpsman course. Cause in the, in the Navy, they have corpsmen and, uh, and SOIDC is a, um, is a pretty valued thing in the, um, in the Navy. And then in that, you know, it's basically the same course, just, just different nomenclature for the name. Yeah. And, uh, they, um, they get, uh, quite a bit of veterinary, um, practice, yeah. you know, it really kind of geared toward that, 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 um, that special forces ODA that, you know, they're going to be, maybe they're infiltrating or, 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 um, um, sword, uh, you know, maybe they're maneuvering by, by pack animal. Maybe they're using mules or they're riding horses. Um, maybe they have to, uh, you know, they get into a village somewhere they're trying to earn trust with the village and they need to inspect, you know, they bring them a sick goat and they're like, Hey, we need you to treat my goat. <laughs> you know, the SF medic's going to be like, you know, okay, hold my beer. I got this. <laughs> I, I can, I can take care of, I can, I, I can take care of a goat. Um, yeah, so you get a you get a, a couple blocks on that, and so that really was was kind of cool because we actually did have a horse farm when I was going through that course, and so it was kind of neat to you know learn some of those tools and and bring them home. And mm-hmm. like, hi, honey, can I pull our horse's tooth? She's like, no, you can't pull our horse's tooth. <laughs> like, but I learned how to do it today. She's yeah. like, no, they're fine. They don't need their teeth pulled. I'm like, but I know how to do it. <laughs> Uh, like literally today uh, you dude, learned it or dude, no you're talking about on, like past tense let me no let me, no like like ranger like in the past. <laughs> oh, I'm like, ranger medics are are insane we we had a medic that uh that went to um sodic as well and came back and was like man i could give anybody a crike he's like let me let me just tell <laughs> like let me find the person that'll be crazy enough to do it and there was somebody else in our uh in our platoon that was like i'll let you do it to me <laughs> wait what is a crike um basically creating an uh, airway through your esophagus oh interesting yeah and i was like it, that's gotta be painful pr- it's a surgical procedure like yeah. it's like a no shit surgical procedure and someone was dumb enough to oh, do it right. no 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 they didn't it? do it oh, okay. they didn't do it but they got drunk and they were trying to convince each other to let one person <laughs> do it and the other medic trying to actually do it and it was yeah ranger medics are crazy <laughs> that's pretty funny i've got yeah, i've gotten pretty they, interested in the whole you know vaccinations with horses and i've, I've watched them go down and i've kind of learned a little bit about it but not enough and I, I definitely would like to learn more about the uh kind of you know things that you have to do and shots and uh, immunizations they have to oh, take yeah. yeah well that that's um that's awesome so you you spent time uh, on the line you became a a medic working for HIC and everything, and then eventually becoming the company's senior medic. But then you went on to do some more things. Um, can you kind of explain a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, yeah, a little bit. Um, so, you know, these were, this, this was probably, you know, mid 2000s. We, we'd been deployed for, you know, several years by that point. And, um, you know, the, the, the community had a rotational schedule. And so, 
you would see the same people from these adjacent units kind of on the same deployments. And I, it, it just by coincidence probably had a, a lot of overlap, like even from my deployments back as like a, a line guy um, up until I was a medic, um, you know, with, with some of the folks from the special mission units. And uh, they were like, Hey, we're looking to bring in some more medics, you know, basically, you know, are you interested? And so you, yeah, they have a, a, a tryout process and assessment. Um, I, I don't want to call it a, I hesitate to use the, 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 the S word. I'm not, I'm not going to go there. I'm just going to say <laughs> they have a, a tryout because it's, it's not like in the mountains anywhere. And, and, uh, you know, but they have a, you know, it's about a week and you, you know, there's a, you know, some PT and road marching and all that stuff. But, you know, then there's, there's, there's obviously a medical scenario and assessment and you meet before a board. Um, and then when they came in, so typically, uh, 18 deltas are, are going into a place like that. And so at the time they'd only brought a couple guys out of the Ranger battalion had been up there yet as medics. And so they wanted to sort of, you know, let them kind of come in slowly, uh, sort of work their way up, I guess. And then, you know, progress through a couple of, like they, you, they wanted people to have all the medical training of an 18 delta, right? So like I needed to go back through that the SOIDC course, you know, the second half of that, of that medic program. Um, and, and yeah, I was able to, to eventually, um, you know, do that. And, uh, probably about a year, I think I spent about a year out there before I did that. Um, just kind of learning kind of the ins and outs of the, of the building and, and getting oriented. And, you know, I did that and then eventually went through, through OTC and, you know, became operational for a while. And, uh, you know, all total, I think I was up there for a little over six years mm. and uh, probably loved every every minute of it, man. It was just a, almost like a, a paradise, like a dream come true. Um, like just the ability to, to train um, and have the access uh, and the autonomy to, to operate it, at, at, you know, medically at, at that level. Um, There's quite a bit of training that was available to you. Um, a lot of resources, you know, not only for the training, but for, for the equipment. And, um, you know, you had the, uh, man, you had the ability to, to, to do some things medically, um, that, that just can't be compared, has, has no equal anywhere else in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, from, from, you know, just, just, just basic, you know, sports medicine, obviously that the trauma care you were doing was, was very cutting edge. Um, you know, advanced surgical procedures, um, you know, like you're doing things that there are, there are like literally battalion surgeons out there that are, don't, <laughs> that aren't trained to do some of the things that you've been trained to do. Oh, wow. Um, I mean, you're, you're, an, you're an incredible force multiplier on the battlefield. And, uh, I, you know, I just, I'm very honored, um, and feel, feel very humbled, uh, to have been able to, uh, to, to, to spend time there. And, so um, in, in order to go through job. that, did you have to go down the long road? No. Okay. No, no. I want to be, I want to be very clear about that. <laughs> no, 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 no. There are, there are people that take a long walk and then there are those that support the people that have taken a long walk. I was, I was clearly a person that supported, uh, the, the, those people, um, was it was a direct support medic. And, uh, uh, we, we do a, there is a course that like new medics go through, right? Like, there's a bunch of advanced procedures that they learn. Um, right out the get go, because just I mean, think about RASP or any of the other courses. You got to start from some foundations 
and then you and then you advance it, you know, as you, as they get there. And same th- same thing with with medics. You know, you got to come from everybody on one base, and then you move them up to. Uh, so they kind of know their place in the in the hierarchy and what their what their position is. But but at the same time, they also know what assets are available to them, um, and so they're getting a lot of a lot of battlefield info and uh, other units that are out there, other medical resources that are available, um, and how you basically have the power to like you know call and request um, these assets, which is um, you know so from a strategic standpoint is is phenomenal. Um, that you've got like E6s, E7s, and E8s that, that have the ability to move some of these, you know, basically theater level assets. Um, you know, it's just, it's just kind of remarkable. Yeah. So I know, um, so for like the next kind of topic or question I have, I want to carefully tread with how we word it and, uh, I don't want to dance around it too much, but, um, what's the proper terminology we can use for what you're involved in as being, you know, with a tier one medic? Um, I was a troop medic in the U S army special operations command. Okay. Gotcha. So you Sasak. Okay. Gotcha. And then, um, if you're able to talk about it, what were some like missions or moments that you remember the most from your deployments? Um, well, that's, that's interesting. There's, I mean, it's kind of like, where do you, where do you even start? Um, I don't know. I don't always think about like the missions themselves. I think about some of the other experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one that always comes to my mind is I had a, uh, was working at an outpost. We had about 25 people there. Um, we had an interpreter that went out with, we were, and we were working and training with some, some local forces. Uh, so we were, they were coming to the compound every couple of days to do some training. We were going out on missions with them. Uh, so like our interpreter went out with, with a couple of them, maybe in one of our other guys to do some things in, in the surrounding area. And, uh, they passed a street food vendor on their way back toward the outpost. Mm-hmm. And so they stopped and they bought all this, all this food. Now, now mind you, it was like late in the afternoon and they bought food that had like literally been sitting out since like probably 9 a.m. Oh, and, uh, it, you know, we're in an area that was probably pushing a hundred every day. Um, and I guarantee there was a lot of like hummus and milk and egg based products. And, I'm going to gag. I mean, food inspection is like a very small part of the special operations medic forte, if you will. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it, you didn't even need any training to walk over and kind of look at this stuff and go like, no. And I turned around to everybody and I said, I advise you as your competent medical authority on the camp to like, away um and we probably on that unfortunately at that particular camp there was only like a handful of operational people and most everybody else like had a had what i would call a desk job and we'll just leave it at that and uh they were they they were like in this foreign country but like never really went outside to experience this foreign country Mm -hmm. so i can kind of see how they would be tempted how here was the outside this foreign country coming into them yep. and they're like, Oh, you know, we're near Kurdistan. We heard so many good things about the food and all this stuff. And, and they hear they, they never get to experience it. Right. Mm-hmm. So, the, so they get the street food. And I think out of like 25 people, I ended up with like 21 or 22 with like 
incapacitated food poisoning. Jeez. Um, like, like coming out of both ends. Uh, I had a couple of people lose like 15, 20% body weight. <laughs> like it was, Jeez. it was, it was pretty massive. That was um, crazy. You know, I, uh, I felt like I was back in the schoolhouse again with my patient where, you know, there's a, there's a portion of the course where you have a patient for several days and you're basically living and sleeping in the, in the schoolhouse, writing notes on your patients. And that's kind of what I was like for about a week. Um, was basically just kind of running on empty, uh, trying to, to keep everybody hydrated. You know, you get to that point where you're like running out of IVs. Um, you know, I'm running out of all of my things to slow down their, their gut. Right. So like all my anti-emetic and nausea medicines, right? Like I can't give them any of that stuff. Cause I just don't, I, I went through it all. You know, I mean, I, you, you plan for contingencies, but like, <laughs> you know, you don't expect uh, like a hundred, almost you near know, 90% of your force to go down with something, you know, yep. 50%, 40%, maybe. Um, and I was having a hard time getting supplies, uh, you know, brought in. I don't know if it was, I can't remember if it was weather or something, but, you know, so we ended up starting to have to kind of get creative with your supply situation. You almost start triaging people based on need. Like, can this person swallow? Um, you know, in a perfect Jeez, world, I'd give God. everybody IVs until, you know, and, and, until I didn't need to anymore, but you only had so many, right? So mm-hmm. then you start getting into that, like, special warfare, unconventional mindset about, well, I only have, you know, X number of, of fluid. How do I properly distribute that? What other medicines do I have? Um, started getting creative with morphine, giving people like, like zero point, like zero one milligrams. I'm talking like super small micro doses, but just because like chemically, you know, it's so, so related to low paramide, so it was going to like slow down their gut on them. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of like basically giving them a, a low dose of modium with, or modium without the, you know, the narcotic effects essentially. And, uh, you know, I thought it was really, uh, I mean, that was really a cool thing for me to be able to, I mean, it was obviously stressful and, you know, I probably didn't sleep for about a week. Um, but it was, it was, it was a, it was a fun experience. Yeah. Um, Oh, what else? Um, you've never lived until you've seen a cow stuff on a landmine. Um, oh, you know, shit. that's always what, that's always why that you can like, you know, you know, you're with new people and they're like, tell me something you don't know. Or what do we, don't, what don't we know about you? And you're like, I bet you didn't know that I've seen a cow stuff on a landmine before. Um, How high up in the air do they go? Have you ever, you ever seen the movie Money Python and the Holy Grail? Yes. You know, where they like catapult the wooden like badger or the rabbit back out over the wall yeah. pretty much like that like, it goes through my mind when i think about it oh shit yeah they it, definitely it get airborne like, <laughs> it did like at least one and a half full rotations before it came back down <laughs> a poor um, cow and damn damn if them locals didn't walk right into that field and they they did not even flinch they didn't hesitate they just like rigged a couple of ropes around it and then started dragging it right on back out. Like, wow. Why let it go to waste? Gonna feed us for, yeah. Gonna feed us for four weeks. Yep. Yeah. That's crazy. I was, I was absolutely mesmerized, man. So to kind yeah, of, a lot, um, of a lot of respect for the people that would do that. No, yeah. Man. I know you're kind of, you know, obviously limited on what we can uh, talk about as far as missions and stuff like that. So I kind of want to speed it up a little bit and go into, you have such an incredible story and I'm, I'm so happy that we were able to get you to be part of this book. And I want to get into kind of the, the negative effects from your personal understanding of what led you down an opioid addiction 
um, while you were still in the service? Uh, I think, you know, at the end of the day, it was just like this perfect storm of events that sort of transpired. And, uh, I had, I had picked up a nagging injury. Um, I was taking, you know, the occasional pain med for, and and I was getting them on the up and up through, through a PA at the, at the building. And, you know, uh, but you know, the other aspect of that is I was hiding that from my wife, right? Like, so I didn't want her to know I was taking these pain medicines and maybe that was because, well, like, I'm supposed to be this tough guy that doesn't need them, or maybe it's more likely the fact that she was a pharmacist and would come home and like tell me all these stories that she had to deal with because she was on like the front lines of the opioid epidemic as it was as it was taking the country. You know, and, it, and it, this would have been 2000, you know, nine, ten, or no, uh, yeah, 2010, 11, right around there. Okay. And uh, so hey, maybe I didn't want to, I didn't want to go there. So I was, I was you know, trying to conceal my use mm-hmm. from the get go, which was, you know, obviously the wrong answer. Um, you know, and then, and then we had, uh, you know, we had some personal tragedy. She spent some time in the hospital. Uh, you know, I missed a deployment in there. Um, you know, and there's, there's some, some mixed feelings you get with that. And cause you know, you're a, you're a medic. There's only a couple of you. Um, you know, if you don't deploy, someone else has to, uh, you know, someone else has to do it. And, yeah. and that means taking someone else away from, from their family. And, and it's, it's a, it's a hypocrisy, right? Like it's, you know, here I am wanting to deploy, to be with my troop, be with my guys because I'm their medic and that's my job and that's what I'm for. But then here's my dear wife, like in the hospital and, you know, you know, you know, yeah. Sometimes I feel really, really, really small when you think about it like that. Like, well, would I rather be like overseas, like chasing bad guys, than be like in, in a hospital with my wife? Like, yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, you know, and so there's there's some conflicting thoughts that go into that, right? So then you start. I mean, anyway, and in the, you know, she had some complications. Uh, we had some some struggles that went along with that, and I think somewhere in there, I just gradually started using more and more of those Percocets. Like they just, I don't know when it really clicked, but somehow when I like, when I would take that, all that stress and all that negativity and a worry and, you know, just a lot of that negativity that we had would just kind of vanish. And I would just kind of zombie out if that makes any sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so would just kind of gradually kept on using, you know, my, my guys came back from their deployment, you know, you know, heroes, vanquishing, stacking bodies, doing what they do. Um, and then, you know, I tried to jump back into things and I think there was some personal guilt there. And maybe on my level, I tried to jump back into too many things mm-hmm. and overextend myself because I felt like I had to catch up. I felt like I had missed like this whole deployment. So now there's all these things that I need to do to, sort of get back on par, you know what I mean? Does that make sense? Right. Yeah, like totally, yeah. set, that, set that, set that even. And, uh, you know, I think I was just overextending myself and then kept using, and then you start doing things where you're training and we traveled extensively. Right. So like we could be deployed and then come home in the time that we're home until we deploy again, we could be like away from home 70% of that time or, 
you know, a good portion of that, we might be home, but we're working like a reverse cycle, you know, so you're, you're doing mission training overnight because you know, we, right, green eyes, black rifles, right, we do stuff at night. Um, so you're, you're hardly ever home. Um, and then here I was like taking on all these additional trips. And then when I was on these trips, I was running out of the Percocets that my PA was giving me. And, uh, you know what? I'm like, okay, well, I'll just take two or three out of my candy box, uh, which is, you know, maybe in hindsight, not a good thing, but that's what we called our, basically our narc boxes back then. <laughs> well, there's um, lollipops in there. That was, it was a very accepted term, right? It was just one of those things. And, uh, so I'm like, you know what? I'll take two, I'll take three. That's fine. I break them in half. Um, it'll get me until I get home. I'll get some more from the dock and then I'll refill my box. And dude, that's where that slippery slope started happening. Yeah. And, uh, I, I distinctly remember a deployment a couple of years before that happened. And, uh, I went to, we were, I had a surgical team attached to me and, you know, as part of their little four, four person team, they had a doc. And I went and talked to him and said, Hey, do you mind if I get a couple of ambient? And I was like, Hey, we, you know, I don't remember if it was like a schedule change or we were doing something. And I was like, I, I just need a night or two of, of good, of good rest. And so of course, you know, ambient is another thing we, we played pretty fast and loose with back then. Um, and he's like, well, Hey, don't you have some ambient? And I fucking laughed at him and was like, dude, I have like hundreds of ambient. I deployed with like 20 some people and I have, enough ambient to put down a battalion for like a week straight. Like, yeah, I got plenty of ambient, but I'm not going to reach into my own box. Like, I don't mm -hmm. want to take my own ambient. Like I, that, that's just once a medic starts doing that, but then you fast forward like two years later and I'm that medic putting my hand in my box. Right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's not long before, before that turns into like, well, Hey, you know, how about that? How about that hit of morphine? How about some fentanyl? And then, you know, that, 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 that doesn't take any time at all until you, you, you have a full blown problem. And, uh, you know, my, one of my issues is that I was a, I was a very cautious maintenance user, you know, uh, maybe it was because I was a, a good medic. Maybe I was too smart for my own good. Mm -hmm. Um, trying to be very conscious of, of my dosing, um, you know, knowing exactly what my concentrations were and what I was giving myself and, 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 you know, going like over and beyond to, to not overdose or to not, you know, put myself into that state where like someone finds you with like a needle hanging out of your arm or, you know, God forbid your EOD. Um, and so no one ever knew. And, and I was, you know, I played the game well enough to be able to still participate and, and perform. And, um, you know, probably putting myself at risk and, and, and probably my teammates too, looking back. Um, you know, and eventually, you, you know, you start realizing that what you're reaching for in your box isn't enough. Mm -hmm. And then you start, you start taking opportunities. And when you find opportunities like unsecured meds, things like that, um, you start using extra, you know, when you deploy, you know, you're, you, you basically just send a, a, a note to a log place somewhere and you're like, Hey, I need Percocets and Valium sent to outstation, you know, X, Y, Z. And they're like, okay, you know, but like, is, is Aaron signing for Percocet? No, no. Like outstation X, Y, Z medic is signing for and And the chain of custody is just, it, 
you know, it's, it's very easy to manipulate in those situations. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's reasons it kind of needs to, to be that way. But it, when you get somebody that, you know, gets into a situation like I was, it becomes very easy to manipulate that system, that system, you know, sort of take advantage of, of those, uh, I guess you could call them loopholes or uh, vulnerabilities would probably be a better, a better way to look at it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and it just, it, it spirals. And so then, you know, finally it kind of came out that I was using, uh, uh, you know, and kind of had the whole, <laughs> the whole group involved, the whole unit, uh, to, to, to some extent. And, uh, you know, and then it, it, it was not long until I was, I was out of the army. Well, it's, it, you know, I want to tread li- lightly, I guess about how I say this, but, um, it's unfortunate how easy it can be for something like that to happen because I I know of a situation firsthand that is very, very similar to yours. We had a medic who got injured and uh, same sort of thing. He, he came back after his injury, went on deployment, and he was unfortunately kind of open about what he was doing. Um, but even going on a rotation and kind of abusing, but we, you know, in special operations, medics are so short staffed, short handed that it's kind of like, well, you, you almost turn a, a blind eye to it and ends up snowballing and becoming a bigger issue than, you know, somebody who just would have addressed it from the beginning. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I saw one of, you know, my, my friends who was a medic kind of snowballed to a point to where, you know, he eventually got out of the army and he kept going and I, I don't know where he is today. And he probably would know if I was, if he was listening to this and know who I was talking about and I wish nothing but the best for him. But, um, just in these situations, it's, it's easy. I mean, it's, it, it's easy for something like this to happen is all I can say. Yeah. That's kind of what I was going to say is yeah, I feel it, like there, there's a lot of temptation to that term, that candy box or just getting yourselves involved in that kind of stuff because of, I can imagine what you're experiencing all around you and maybe even stuff back home that's elevating that. I just, I think that it's probably a bigger issue than a lot of people think, you know, that it really is. Yeah, there's there's a lot of factors. I think one of it is we had kind of become desensitized to to using um, using these pain medicine on on people, and and I know you know sometimes people like to draw parallels with like the sports world and say like, oh man, these people are you know we've all seen the movies where like the football players getting the the steroid injection into the knee to keep them in the game, or they're getting you know, the pain pills to fight through something to get them back out there. Like I want to be very upfront when I say this and no disrespect to athletes because they really do put themselves through a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's some hard work and some dedication, but it's a fucking game <laughs> and, it's, and they're playing true. for money. And like, it's a I, again, I mean, no disrespect, but they ain't doing it for life and death, man. I mean, we, we, we can make some analogies about like, well, you're making a better life for yourself and your family and that, is life and death, but that's philosophical shit. I'm talking about like true life and death. And like, if you have a, a fucking pipe slinger that, that, that has an injury, 
that dude doesn't want to do anything except get back behind a rifle and get back out there and put the business in toward the people that deserve it. And they're going to do whatever they have to do to get through that. Um, I mean, I had a dude with like a fucking torn Achilles tendon and he was like, Hey, can you just, can you just wrap this up and tape it a little bit? Uh, give me a Percocet and I'll be good. And I'm like, well, let's just start with the wrap and the tape, but this is your Achilles tendon, man. Like, are you sure? And he's like, yeah, it's just a little uncomfortable when I stand on a ladder and look over a wall. And I'm thinking like, you're, you're, you're like your Achilles tendon. Like, how are you even still walking? And uh, he just wanted like some athletes, you know, just, just a tape job. That's crazy. Um, that's, that's like major know, surgery and, too. Know, oh yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, sometimes if, if some pain medicine or a day off is what they need, maybe they take that, but like guys will do whatever it takes to get back out there. And, so you see people, you know, uh, getting prescribed. It's kind of, you know, and I'm not gonna say is because it was. Uh, it was very much sanctioned by, like, you know, the, the I'm just gonna say the powers that be. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know, people were coming back with injuries. I mean, you know, like debilitating injuries, and so you almost didn't have any other options for them. And it's like, well, you know, I yeah, we can do these exercises. We can do PT. We can do but man, that's only going to get you so far, you know, yeah. but I can take away your pain. Like, and, and some, maybe as a medic, sometimes you feel like you have to do something. And if you can just lower that pain down a little bit, uh, you know, that at the time, you know, that was worth it, but we just didn't have any other tools, you know, like acupuncture. Uh, there's some holistic stuff out there nowadays. Yeah. Um, the sports medicine thing has really, taken off and people are you know getting much more into you know sports medicine like like when i was a uh, uh an infantryman when i first came in man if you got hurt that was like a death wish mm-hmm. you know like if you hurt a d on a jump or something like you either went to the arms room or you went to the gym and and i know we say gym and you're like oh that dude's just gonna like lift and work out all day long no you sit in the back and it's like sell t-shirts and, you know you work for the f5 mm-hmm. you don't lift out for anything you become fat um you know like you just and, and i shouldn't i shouldn't i'm not trying to shame anybody i shouldn't use that word but like <laughs> you 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 stop being a ranger like you know and we just didn't have the the tools in place we didn't have the physical therapy capability we didn't have that sports medicine mindset now when people get hurt, it's like they have a legit fitness center to go to. They have professionals to look at them and evaluate them and mm-hmm. coax them through like that whole process. And, and that's, that's game changing, you know, you're fat in Aaron's eyes because Aaron is still very fit. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know what though, I will say about uh range regiment, and I don't know if this is true across the units, but uh, in order to become even a support, well, there were very few. I think we only maybe had two, but for the most part, 99% of the time, in order to even be support staff within Ranger Battalion or Ranger Regiment, you still had to go through RIP or now RASP, which is pretty Correct. incredible to think about. Like, you're, you're, you're a cook, but you still have to volunteer to jump out of airplanes and to get the, the balls smoked out of you through rip or rash now school. that's crazy yeah and go to ranger school and all that stuff and, and it's like to be oh. a cook <laughs> it's crazy i i i think there is almost nothing cooler um than a cook wearing his cook whites with a ranger tab yeah i mean that's it's pretty just, awesome it's just one of those things that like 
you walk into a chow hall and you're like, you're, you're going to do a fucking double take, man. You're going to be like, are you, that dude's flinging eggs back there? Holy shit. Like, <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. He must be a savage I, I cook. Have, and having, having, you know, gone to the dark side and turned into a, a support, uh, MOS myself. Like I got nothing but respect for, for, for all them folks in regiment that, that put themselves through, you know, rip rasp, um, and then take that, that step further and say like, Hey, I'm in a, I'm in a ranger unit. I want to go to ranger school. Like I want to be a, I want to be an NCO, a leader. You know, I want to be a jump master. Like I, they, they want to be those next level things. Um, and really be an asset to the, to the organization. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And my hat, my hat goes off to all of them for that, that dedication. Um, so to, I, I guess the, the kind of transition here, cause you, 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 uh, you know, you eventually left the military, um, you know, what, it, what did that look like for you, that, that initial transition and just trying to, you know, find what your next is? Oh, dude, I, I, I think I mentioned in the book something about like, it felt like getting thrown out of an aircraft before the green light, right? And so when you're, for those of you and the, maybe the viewers, you know, uh, the listeners out there, I guess, uh, if, if you're jumping out of a plane, like you're, you're hooked up, you're maybe, maybe you're ready to go. Um, pilot will turn on the green light. That means you're over the drop zone. If that green light's not on, that means you're over the Walmart or, you know, an enemy <laughs> field. When I say Walmart because in Savannah, if you jump the airfield here at Hunter, um, you know, if you went out before the green light, you were going to land in the Walmart parking. It's not a Walmart anymore, but it used to be a Walmart. Um, and there's always rumors, you know, the urban legend of the guys that used to land parachute into the, the Walmart. But, um, <laughs> And when I got out, man, I honestly, like I had no exit plan. It was not something I was thinking towards. It just happened. Like it was, you know, okay, you're, you're a drug abuser, you know? Uh, I went to like a 30 day inpatient rehab, um, uh, which, you know, I, I guess good, good and bad. We could, you know, one of those things. Um, and then it really wasn't, but a couple of months after that, um, that I was out of the army, man. And like army can get rid of you really quickly if they want to. <laughs> and, uh, um, I was, I'm a perfect example of that. Like it, it did not take me long at all to clear my gear, get everything turned in and, and get chipped down the line. So when I say I got thrown out before the green light, like I didn't even have my shoot on, like I wasn't even thinking that direction. Like mm-hmm. I'd, I'd been in like 12, 12 years by that point, man. Like I was, enlisted re-enlisted in depth like i was already thinking you know hey i'm about to be a, a squadron senior medic you know what are the what are the things i can do after that like starting to think a little bit more long term um but had definitely by that point like basically committed to at least the 20 you know the, the 20 um so getting getting all of a sudden thrust out into the open man it was a whole different world out there and for me I wanted to, to run away. I was ashamed and scared and, uh, you know, guilty and just all these, all this negativity that you felt, you know, and, you know, and and it's nothing about being a a medic, although being a, you know, there are certainly less medics in those, these different organizations out there. And so when you lose one, it, it, it does sort of, you know, throw the burden on some other people, you know, kind of, you know, organizational charts have to get, you know, shifted around and that kind of thing. But I mean, um, it really just fucked over my guys. And, 
you know, like spend 10 years, I still struggle with, with those feelings of, 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 of guilt and, and letting all those people down. Um, I can imagine, you know, I, I basically lived to, to do that job. Like I thought I was pretty decent at it. And, uh, um, yeah, I mean, again, it was best, best job in the world. You can't couldn't ask for anything more, especially as a medical provider. And so, you know, you, you just know right off the bat that you're never going to experience that again. Like, but I didn't know that at the time, like I mm-hmm. should have, but you know, I was, I still wanted to, to think of myself as a, as an action guy and do cool stuff. And, uh, uh I'm not going to get into it too much, but I, I got suckered into a job up in new England and, uh, really, really went there because it was like 900 miles from, from Fort Bragg, you know, and I knew that, I could I could go into a grocery store and not walk into a teammate or somebody I was in battalion with or somebody I went to OTC with or or one of those things. And that was just because and, the, uh, the the guilt was so heavy for you. You just you didn't want to face it. Really, I can imagine it would just it weighed yeah. on you. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And, uh, and and you know, and that was that was real rough. And 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 my my wife, bless her heart, she. She, she really liked that area we were living in. She, she, uh, she had a good thing going in the community was, was very much a part, um, of some different aspects within the, within the community there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and was very well respected. Um, and so having to kind of upend all that all of a sudden, um, uh, was, uh, was, was trying to say the least. Um, and, uh, she's a, she's a bit of a, a Southern, she likes the warmth. We'll say that. That might be a better way to say that. Um, she uh, she likes the sunshine, and uh, I don't blame you don't her. Get as much of it as you would like up up north. Those winters kind of long and cold. Yeah. And uh, but for me, it was you know it was like a penance. You know, it was almost like, well, I I deserve this. This is my punishment for mm-hmm. for what I did. I should be in jail. Like you know you know forging forging you know re- you know records and and stealing narcotics like you know they they by all accounts could have put me in jail um and i would not have 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 blamed them honestly like maybe maybe some days like i i, I almost wish that would have happened um you know obviously I, I i don't but you know you you get to that to where you're feeling like that mm-hmm. um and uh so we 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 ran away to to new england uh you know the job talking about special operations veterans and i thought i would be working with some like-minded people and and i worked on a small team and the people on my team um were, were awesome and uh I, i'm really glad for the opportunities i got this to, to share and, and spend with them um and and you know and it was a cool experience living in a, i'd never lived farther north in pennsylvania so it was cool to to get up into that part of the country and uh, I'm a runner, so like the trail running was was world class. I mean, there was some phenomenal trail running up there. Uh, mountain biking, uh, the the skiing, if you're willing to to seek it out, you know, and and find it, um, you know. But but ultimately, it just it just wasn't working for us. Um, you know, we'd uh, I, I think you know for some reason, like uh, I was just struggling, like, and I hadn't really processed a lot of my transition i guess and it just happened so suddenly yeah you almost get into like a, a survival mode like well i just i need a job i need income like i need i need to do something 
Um, and so you kind of take the, one of the first things you can latch on to. Um, and it was, and it was, it was suitable. And I, you know, I made okay money and did okay. Um, but I, I just wasn't happy at the yeah. end of the day. Like I, I enjoyed what the region offered me on like a recreational level. Um, but my wife clearly wasn't happy and, uh, and, and, and I was not happy the, the longer I stayed there. And, you know, the, maybe it's one of those things where, you know, when you're in the heat of something, a lot of times people will tell you to compartmentalize something. And, uh, I think I had done that through a lot of my, my deployments in my military time. Mm -hmm. And, uh, eventually with, whether you're ready for it or not, those, those compartments start cleaning themselves out. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, all of a sudden you start getting a, a flood of intrusive thoughts and, you know, some of these, uh, some of these, these past experiences will come back to you. Uh, and so I was, you know, learning how to, to, to navigate that. Um, you know, I think, uh, Shelly had some, some more medical issues around that time and we were both just, I mean, just, just, just done with it. Right. Like, yep. like we, I mean, you know, I have voluntarily given guns away on, on several occasions, um, you know, because at, at one point I, I was afraid for myself to have them in the house. And then I've alternately been afraid for her having them in the house. Like we've had, you know, I think she called me at work one day after after some of her, her, her last round of surgeries and, and incidents and, you know, like, hey, how do you turn this, how do you turn this rifle on? I'm like, oh, she, like, I'll, you know, I don't, I don't even know if I hung the phone up. Like, I'll just, how fast can I get home and, and get rid of these things? Um, you know, and I think that maybe we were so far away, kind of wanted to run away, but it isolated us until we didn't have any kind of a good support network to maybe yeah. deal with some of these things. Um, so that's, that's kind of ultimately when we, uh, we decided to come back down here. Yeah. Well, you know, if I can touch on one thing first, I don't want to backtrack too much, but um, I think that uh, that initial guilt, like when you leave whatever unit you're part of, I think that that happens to everybody. I know your situation is very, very different, um, but I had all intentions of staying in for a while until I think my last nine months in or something like that, and I made the decision I'm not reenlisting. Um but that feeling when you first leave and you're like, damn, I'm leaving all my guys behind. That's a, that's a feeling that I think affects a lot of people. And, um, like I said, I know it's, I'm not drawing any parallels to you, but just so that people who may be listening and understanding, like they, they felt the same thing is like, that's, that's something you have to deal with. That's not expected. That's not trained, mm-hmm. you know, in taps or whatever the transition program is called now that you don't, you don't really feel it until it happens. So I, I get that. Like, I understand that, that, that feeling of just being like, you know what? I just want to get away, run away and just get away from it yep. and not want to have to think about it. Not to see the guys that I served with or whatever it was. Cause I did the same thing. I moved across the country. <laughs> like I, I pushed a lot of that stuff off because, you know, I, I, I became the best that I could be. And I should have continued to serve as my, was my feeling. Mm. And I should have continued to be there for my guys. And that was my feeling. And I was like, if I can't be there for them, then I don't want to see them. And that was part of my, like, 
just thing that that brought me across the country and just got me to com- pretty much completely abandon my identity that was behind me. You know, I was like, all right, that's in the rearview mirror. I don't want to look back. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think a lot of people kind of struggle with that initial transition. Um, but I could imagine. I, I mean, I, I can't imagine actually how how yours is is even a well, different level what, above I, that. I I think you're onto something. I think that you know maybe maybe on some level, no matter how you get out, that transition is going to be difficult. And and a lot of people want to go somewhere different. Um, I I have a good a good friend, mentor, uh, a team leader um, that. You know, I think in his words, he was forced out of the army. And I remind him like, no, man, like I, <laughs> I was chaptered out of the army. That's getting forced out of the army. You were told to retire because you maxed out like, like, I, mean, I think, I think like 30 plus years, maybe. Um, and I don't think the dude has any more arm space for the number of deployment ribbons that he can hold on there. Um, you know, he's, he's a multi-time bronze star earner he's a silver star recipient um and he probably has more unconventional medical experience in austere locations than any medic since the vietnam war and and i'm not even like hyperbole like those are all very true statements but even him when he left he could not be the same person he was and he went across the country for a job um and i love him I mean, absolutely love him to death, but that's his way of, of processing it. Yeah. Um, and you just kind of have to respect, you know, pe- people, we all have to go through a little bit of a process. And, uh, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, everyone's situation is, is a little bit unique. Everyone comes from a different place in their lives and they have different places that they go back to. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they can use, they can use their military time to, to shape uh, what they do in the future. I, I just think one of the biggest things is, is plan for that future. Like start thinking about what that drop zone looks like long before you get there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, know the approach route, right? So if you, if you have to get out of that aircraft before you reach the, the drop zone, you don't, you want to know where the terrain looks like where you're landing. Yeah. Um, so knowing how much of an impact you and your wife have had, you know, for each other, dealing with her health issues, um, you know, being in the hospital multiple times and your own, you know, addictions, you know, how has that brought you two closer together? Oh, I mean, we have, we have saved each other's life. Um, you know, I've, she tells me I've I've saved her life. Like uh, she was having a stroke in the hospital one time, and uh, I was trying to tell the people in the hospital she was having a stroke, and they were like, "No, no, like it's just a reaction to the anesthesia." And you know, this is where like the ranger team later and you starts coming out, and you're mm-hmm. like, "Hey, look, motherfucker! Like, <laughs> like I know what I'm fucking talking about. This is not a reaction to anesthesia." in her head or I'm going to fucking throat punch you. And, uh, <laughs> you know, you're in a military, yeah, I mean, I was in, I was in Walter Reed. I don't want to throw any, I don't want to throw him under the bus cause we never took him to court or anything, but like it was, it was just this awful incident. And, and I think I literally had to threaten violence, um, before they did, they gave her a CT and they're like, Oh yeah, she's got like a two tablespoon bleed in her cerebellum. Jesus. Um, yeah. Wow. That's, 
she's gonna have to she's gonna have to relearn how to walk sorry about that um you know so that that's frustrating um and then when she started having seizures um we've we've had a couple incidents where like she she basically gets into to a status um where she has this continuous seizure and she really doesn't come out of it maybe you know in 45 50 minutes she'd have like eight or nine seizures wow but never never have what they call a postictal period right where you're like out of the seizure but they're still a little bit like yep out of it like she she would stop convulsing for like two three seconds and then go right back into another one so full on like the grand time yeah yeah total grandma. yeah yeah exactly and so like after that, I think the second time where we had to wait like 50 minutes for, for a paramedic to come give her some a benzo, like talking to the staff at the hospital, like, look, just prescribe her some Bursad or what, you know, like I, I, I can do this. And, uh, and that, that took some convincing, you know, it was an Ivy league hospital and well, I'm just going to leave it at that. But, but, but now, I mean, we have good doctors nowadays. <laughs> I do carry around. Uh, a kit, you know, that's always like within arm's reach when I'm with her. And so when, when she does have a seizure, I can like instantly, you know, drop some medicine and give it to her. And, yeah. um, you know, it's not, it's not difficult to do, but I think my, my background obviously uniquely positions me to be able to assist in those, in those situations. So she, she obviously would say that I saved her life. Um, and then, uh, I think just by sticking with me, um, and, and being supportive and, and loving and, and backing me up and, you know, and the fact that we've been through all this, um, you know, and, and, you know, it, first of all, I want to say I'm glad she stayed with me through all the deployments because that in and of itself is, is not an easy thing. I think, mm-hmm. I think any, any military spouse out there, um, will, will tell you that they feel the effects of a deployment, you know, on some level as much as the, the person deployed you know, a little bit differently. Right. But it, there's still a lot of uncertainty and unknown. And, you know, I know for about three or four months, she was not watching anything, but like, you know, her old friends, DVDs, um, cause she didn't want to turn on the news and, you know, didn't mm-hmm. want to look at the internet and see, see yep. these headlines and, and think about what it could be. Cause she knew I wasn't sitting in a clinic somewhere, you know, yeah. my mom, my mom thinks, I was sitting in the clinic and that will, that, and that will be the party line. If, if, uh, if anyone is confronted about that, like yeah, right. I was in a medical clinic, it, it was just, I mean, technically, yes, it was just on my back or in my pockets, you know, uh, kind of a mobile medical clinic, if you will. But, uh, yes, mom, I was, I was in a medical clinic. <laughs> it's, uh, was, I told my mom the same lie for my first, I think three or four deployments. She had no idea. I, I think she knew I was a ranger, but she had no idea what I did. I didn't tell her for like the first three deployment, three or four deployments. Yeah, I mean, how do you how do you tell mom? Like, well, yeah, I, <laughs> I don't even I don't even know how to say that. Like, yeah, I've done unspeakable things to people, or like, you know, like I had to take a picture of this guy's head, but it was like exploded, so I had to like use like some rocks and stuff to try and put it back together. <laughs> Um, like, you know, oh, that one guy, I needed to get a DNA sample, but you know, 
his mouth was was there, but so were like the four bullet holes next to it. So like we're you know easy place to stick a cute. Like you don't you don't tell your mom that kind of stuff. I, I feel like I should like low key be a medic because I laugh at the most like darkest shit. <laughs> <laughs> and and you have and that's and that that's maybe that's uh there's a there's a there's a thing in the in the soft community. It's like a known thing that like medics are generally some of like the weirdest. Most awkward people. In the I told team. you at the beginning. Um, ranger medics are crazy. <laughs> yeah, ra- ranger medics have a tendency to be crazy. Some of your your eighteen delta medics. Um, a lot of people will tell you, and it's not you know, it's like all stereotypes, right? Like it's not a hundred percent, you know. And it's yeah, and they're not really play. crazy, but it it is the mindset thing, and just like how you process things is just completely different. And I mm-hmm. get it because you have to. Uh, yeah, you have to have that dark humor, um, you know, and I think my, my light bulb moment for that, for, um, for being a medic, man, and like you, you know, I, my, my roommate in the soccer course, like we got paired together cause our names were like a letter apart or, you know, like I was in LA, my last name and he's in LE or something. And so we had to, we sat next to each other in class. We had a room in the barracks, you know, there for the school, um, and you know you're you're sitting next to each other in the in the classroom, so your partners for like prostate exam day, and so I think like being able to like do a prostate exam on your desk mate, who also happens to be the guy you're living with in the barracks, and then go That's like share awesome. a sandwich with them. <laughs> it's a very awkward and uncomfortable <laughs> like. That's like the longest half hour lunch I think I've ever had in my life. Like we both just kind of stared off into the wall, like <laughs> like, <laughs> like the worst thing in the world had happened. Like we just violated each other, so wrong. Um, and then I think it just kind of clicks for everybody, and it's like you know what? Like you really just have to accept that as a medic, you're going to have to deal with some really uncomfortable situations. Um, and I, I, I mean, I don't know if they do that on purpose in the schoolhouse or not, but I, I yeah. doubt it, right? But like um that that's there are no barriers anymore at that point like all those walls come down and you're able to just kind of kind of deal with stuff yeah so i i I think uh so for people listening uh, obviously aaron we've met up a few times and i've had the pleasure of sitting down and meeting both you and your wife and and hearing more in-depth stories and i think not only is our show and this podcast meant to highlight you know veterans who have served you know overseas or have just been in the military in some regard and where their lives have taken them afterwards. But I think it's also important to tell, you know, the personal story of each individual. And the story that I love is, is how you and your wife met. Can you, can you tell us a little bit more about that? (laughs) I can tell you about that actually. Uh, It's one of her favorite. It's actually, I think it might be her favorite story. It's Um, It's a great story. But we, we actually met in Key West, uh, Florida. Um, so I was, I was still in 175, I was in first bat and, uh, as a medic, my, uh, my battalion senior medic was like, Hey, I'm going to send you to the dive med course. He's like, yeah, we don't really do a lot of diving in regiment these days, but, um, you know, you, you learn a whole lot about neurology. It's a, it's a really good lecture, you know, just take away everything you can about the neuro. And I was like, okay three weeks in Key West. That sounds pretty awesome. And so that's really all I was thinking about at the time. But the, but the SF, uh, you know, special forces dive school is in Key West and then they run a, a, a dive medical technician course. And so you're kind of become the person, um, 
you know, that takes care of the divers, you know, you know, during the dive, you know, can have like a wet DMT or a dry DMT. Um, and then if need be, you can accompany them into like a decompression chamber. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you're prepared to do like basically all the medical procedures you would do on land, like chest tubes and airways and IVs and all that. You could, you'd be able to do those in the chamber. And so, you know, it was three weeks, but the, but the didactics were, it was actually one of the most like academically demanding courses um, I think I've been through because you're dealing with like pressures, uh, dive tables, um, you're having to calculate like people's bottom times. Anyway, it was a really, really fun course. But yeah, obviously, you know, aside from the academics and the, the helo casting and the other cool stuff that we do down there, like you're in Key West, right? So you do what soldiers do on a weekend in Key West. And, uh, you know, I, I, was, I was out with some guys from the course. And, uh, playing chess, right? Not drinking. Yeah. I, I think we're actually helping a lady cross the street. You know, we were holding (laughs) up traffic. Maybe maybe we were helping like a wounded pigeon across the road or something. (laughs) I knew you were a gentleman. (laughs) And somewhere in the distance, we see this, this group all wearing this tank top. And they're all wearing the same tank top, by the way. And as they get closer, you can realize the tank top has puppy paint on it. And it says like, carries tie in the knot so buy us a shot (laughs) and they were probably uh 10 or uh, 12 maybe i don't know there's quite a few of them it's a little bit of a blur at this point um (laughs) they did have a gigantic blow-up doll uh named peter that they were carrying around and uh naturally when a group like that goes into an establishment in a place as upscale as key west um, it does not take long before the music, the house musician has them up on stage, right? Because that's like, that's like free entertainment. Oh, that's totally. going to draw a crowd. People are going to come in. People are going to start buying drinks. I mean, that's just business right there, man. It's just, that just makes good sense. So we see her and I noticed Shelly because she's a Burnett and, you know, she was actually going to pharmacy school in Fort Lauderdale at the time. And so the majority of her classmates were very typical South Florida blonde and uh not you know hey you know to each their own nothing against the blondes out there but uh a little little partial of the darker hair girls myself the dark hair and, and light uh, eyes are always the best so i yeah <laughs> yeah yeah and she and she has beautiful blue eyes and uh so i see her in this bar and then like whatever like and you and guys you know the rules like why even bother yep. a bachelorette party like you know they're just there to have fun you know, they're all like, it's not going to, it's just not going to go. Anywhere. You'll get so eaten like, alive. Just, just don't bother. Yeah. Just, just, there are plenty of other fish in that sea, you know, <laughs> and, uh, enjoy the spectacle for what it is, but, but move on to another target. So we did, we went to another bar and, uh, I was getting a bar from the, or I was, yeah, I was getting a drink from the bar. I turned around and I spilled my whole beer on, on this girl's shirt. And obviously it, it was Shelly and, uh, we, I don't think we left each other's side the rest of that night. And, uh, I will say her friends were, were very good. They kept telling me that she was the good one and she normally doesn't drink and all this. And, uh, they were very protective. Mm -hmm. Like I was very close to her all night, but they would not let me get, you know, as close as I wanted to. And, uh, as, as they should, you're a ranger. (laughs) <laughs> exactly. Well, they did. For you know what? Fortunately, like Key West is not a, a. I mean, obviously, there's some naval entities down there, 
Um, you know, like I said, SF runs their dive school down there, but all the locals think they're just Navy SEALs. So mm-hmm. like, you know, joke, jokes on them, I guess. Um, <laughs> but they did not know what a ranger was. And, and, you know, you can't really explain that to people very well. So, and, and nor do you necessarily want to, right? <laughs> you don't really want them to know that you're just, you know, you're just this mischievous bastard. Um, but, uh, so anyway, like her friends, you know, kept shielded her and they're like, all right, we're leaving. And I'm like, Hey, I want to see you again. You know, and this is like one night, right? Like just, just talk to this girl for a couple hours and they left. And that was, that was the end of it. Well, the next night we went back out and, uh, the very first bar I walk into, man, she's standing right there in the, in the front. And she was, well, I'm sorry. She was sitting on a couch, but when she saw me, she stood up and then promptly realized how much she'd been drinking and fell right over. So we, we get her to her feet <laughs> and, uh, you know, kind of, you know, was able to pull her away from the herd, if you will, um, kind of send her off. And we, I mean, honestly, man, we ended up going and finding a little bench, um, like down by the waterfront there. And we just sat on this bench for like five hours talking about our upbringing and what we're doing in life. And, you know, and I mean, I think she had some plans and where she wanted to see herself. And, you know, I, uh, I probably didn't have as many concrete plans and, you know, probably like most medics bumbled something about PA school, uh, you know, try to make yourself look, a, look a little more, uh, uh, attractive, I guess, uh, you know, trying to, trying to keep, keep pace with the conversation. Yeah. Um, so anyway, like her, her friends ended up taking her away from me, uh, and I, you know, wanted to get her phone number and she's like, no, I don't want to give you my phone number. I don't know you. And she's like, well, I'll tell you what, give me your phone number and I'll think about it. And if I decide to call you, you know, you'll have it. And so, you know, she, this was, let me tell you how long ago this was. She pulled her flip phone out. The razor. And, uh, she, <laughs> yeah. This might've been like free razor. Actually. <laughs> this was probably not a razor. Um, you know, this, this was not a razor. Yeah, and, uh, whatever it was and so she uh she's like all right you know what i'm I'm gonna call you so it saves it and without realizing that she just called me and so now i have her phone number in my in my call history so they were the girl that was getting married like i guess maybe her family had got her like a a suite or a floor or something in the the hotel there and so they were all staying at the hotel for the weekend and Mm -hmm. I knew she was driving back up to Fort Lauderdale the next day at some point. And so I gave her a call that morning. Um, and I know all, whatever, you know, it was, I know it's the next day and probably too soon, but I was just like, Hey, I, I just, I know you're driving back home today. And I just have, I really, really like meeting you and, you know, have a, have a good safe trip trip and you know, hope, hopefully we can see each other in the future. And, uh, I finished that course like a week later I think we talked on the phone like every night for the next week. And then I stopped through to see her on the way back up here to Savannah. And, uh, I showed, I knew she had a big dog. She had a German shepherd that she talked about a lot. So I showed up with some flowers and some dog treats. Um, and that dog took a liking to me. And I think that had that dog not taken a, a liking to me, there would not have been another date. Like it would not have proceeded any further. So I, I really think I played my cards right with the dog treats. No, you're a smart and, man. Uh, that's, you always have to do that. If you know the girl that you're into has a dog, that's the first thing that you're bonding with. 
Yep. Yeah. And you're like, Hey, I don't know if these treats are good enough, but these are what, you know, my childhood <laughs> dog used to eat or something, so yep. like whatever I showed up with, you know? And, um, and that was that man. And we've, uh, well, I guess the, uh, so that this would have been sometime like December of 2004, maybe. Mm-hmm. And I deployed again, um, like, like January, like maybe a couple of days after the new year. Um, and she wrote me a letter, like a, like a pen and paper letter stamp envelope letter for the, for the list, you know, the listeners out there that don't know what that is, like, like mail, right? Like, like post office and everything. And, uh, she wrote me a letter every day, man. Like I was that dude that people hated because like <laughs> they would be like, Oh, Aaron, you got more. Hey doc, we got mail for you. Or, hey Lord, <laughs> come get your mail. And, uh, like, God damn it again. You know, but. Uh, but that's how we got to know each other, man. It was like just old fashioned. That's cool. Pals. I love I mean, that. Yeah, the, mil- the military had like internet and they had some phone access and all that stuff set up, but it was sporadic. You had to wait in line for a long time. Um, and you know, the, 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 I'm really glad we did the letter thing. That was a very cool way for us to, to just kind of get to know a lot of stuff about each other. Yeah. Um, Man, we still, uh, yeah, we still have all those letters to this day. That's awesome. And then, so, save them. And then, so I guess going forward too, and, and thanks for sharing that. Cause I remember when you first told me that story, I was like, man, that's just incredible to see the, the, the love and compassion that both you guys have for each other and how you both have, it's, it's, you can tell it's, it's affected both your lives, but it's brought you two so much closer together. Um, I want to move on to, Obviously, I know personally because you took me on one of them, but you helped guide and offer, you know, kayak and paddleboard tours. Have you always been interested in doing those or is that something new to you? Yes. Um, yeah, I, I, I recently started working for a local outfitter um, that, that offers um, paddle trips and, uh, you know, guided, guided tours. We do, you know, kayak trips, uh, some paddleboard trips. Uh, there's just so much water in in, the, in our in our coastal area here in yep. Georgia, and um, you know we've got some unique barrier islands that are uninhabited, and some some pretty cool waterways. And then you know you throw in like some of the local ecology stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I had a, I had a tour this morning. Um, you know, it's springtime, so we've got like baby dolphins out there swimming around. Um, that you're within, you know, like 20, 30 feet of there's, uh, the Eagles have, they, you know, they hatched in like late January or early February, I think. And, you know, we've got some young eaglets getting their wings under them and they're taking flight out of it. So you've been able to kind of watch this progression. So we can, you know, we can share those experiences with people. Um, and I think that's really cool. Um, and, and I guess I don't want to, I probably haven't always been into paddling, um, but I had paddled probably a few times, like as a teenager on some, some, some outings or some trips, youth group kind of thing. Um, and then when I moved, when I came to, to first battalion, like I just realized it was kind of a big thing that people did here. The other thing I realized was as a young private man, like you can spend all your time downtown Savannah, hanging out in river street and, 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 and getting after it. Um, you know, and I just, kind of figured that would not be good for me. Like I, yeah. I thought I'd be the guy that would get in trouble, get the DUI, get the, the, the fight, the alcohol related incident or whatever that tag is. And, and, 
you know, that's one of those things that at least before the war started, like I think they're probably a little more strict on that stuff nowadays, but before the war, it was really a case of, you know, A, are you a good ranger worth saving? And and B, are we over or under strength in the army on your MOS? And, mm-hmm. you know, if you happen to get an incident, and, and I think right after I got to regiment, we were a little bit over strength in the regiment, but we were under strength, you know, 11 bravos that were airborne qualified in the rest of the army so it was almost like they were looking for reasons to get rid of people because uh, they had a place for you right like the rest of the army wanted you yeah and uh you know, I, I saw that happen to to a lot of good friends um actually dude i went to rip with me and this is a funny story because he and i uh went to rip together and then he goes to aco and i go to seco and what happens when you're a private and you and you go to different companies, man. Like you basically go on to another planet, and you like never see that dude again. Um, and so again, we just got into our little nucleuses within our teams and squads and platoons, and and kind of forgot about each other. Mm-hmm. And a couple of years ago, I did a whitewater rafting guide school over in the mountains of West, uh, Western Carolina, and uh, um, you know it's like day one, and we're doing some like ropes course to. I don't know, just kind of a way to meet and greet everybody, you know, uh, introduce us to the course. And uh, this kid starts talking about something and he says something about Ranger. And I kind of talk my eye to him, you know, and I'm thinking like, do you know about Ranger? And, uh, <laughs> you know, we, we kind of did that, like, what do you know, look, or who do you know? And, and I don't even remember how it came out, but it was like, what do you know about being a Ranger? And he was like, I was in regiment. And I was like, oh, yeah, when? He told me the dates, and he, and I was like, "What battalion?" He goes first. And I was like, "Would you fucking go to Rip?" And you know, I mean, we narrowed it down, man, and found out that like we had gone to Rip together, and here it was, like, dude, it was probably almost eighteen years. That's you know, crazy. Gone by and we, we bounced into each other. Um, that's it's so, isn't it, that's so cool. Yeah, isn't it such a weird thing? Like so. I don't know what it is, but you your world gets smaller and smaller as you get to where you eventually are in the army. Like, you know, you know what I mean? You like put on the blinders, whatever it is, but your world gets smaller yeah. and smaller and more and more focused and more and more narrowly focused. Like, honestly, I could, I don't know, I could probably recall 50 to 100 people in, in my company, you know, and I was in for six years and, uh, and so I know there were over a couple hundred people that came through our company in those six years, but I re- recall maybe a hundred, but, exactly. and then you, you somehow leave the service and then you start engaging with people in the community again or whatever it is going to different veteran things. And then you're like, Oh yeah, I know this person. Oh yeah, I know that person. And then you realize how connected you are. You're like, how did yeah. we not run into each other? Or like your world gets so much bigger all of a sudden. Like it's, it's, it's so bizarre how that happens. Yeah. I actually, through a, a, a local veteran organization, um, we, you know, got in contact with another <laughs> veteran organization that has a property and they were bringing us up there to basically look at the property and, you know, they've got some deer stands, they've got some ranges. Um, I think it'd make a really cool like compass orienteering course like that. I think that's something that people could bring their kid with. Um, and share a little bit of that military experience, like with with their family, um, and they could probably do some like obstacle style races there. You know, they got some ponds that you could like do a rope climb. Anyway, like we were up there checking this facility out, and one of the guys that came with 
the organization I had come with turns out like we were in the same platoon together back in one seven five. Like he probably had got there like maybe within a couple of rip classes of me. Uh, so he was a little bit senior. Um, and then we basically kind of grew up, got our tabs roughly around the same time, like first deployments when the war started. And then, you know, I think I went to be a medic and, and he, he might've gone off into another section within the battalion or something, but, you know, you just drift. Right. And then, you know, however many years go by, you don't see each other. Um, and so recently, uh, connecting with him has been really cool and you that's know, awesome. mainly due to those, those veteran organizations, but the, the paddling thing, um, that was a really good outlet for me when I was in battalion. And, uh, you know, I mean, again, you know, right before the war started, the battalion was, was different probably like we were still, I mean, I still remember the days where I would climb out my window to avoid the tab spec fours in the hallway. Uh, cause if it was after hours, man, like you were fair game and, uh, there's just all kinds of shenanigans that can go on. Uh, you know, you throw a little alcohol into that mix and, mm-hmm. and I just, that was, I mean, this is, that was never really my thing. Spec uh, four mafia. I, I'd like freaking jump out of my, my window, uh, sprint out to the parking lot and bail and, you know, would get out on the water. And that was like, and then that, progressed you know when i got moved out of the barracks and, and started living in town like i went out to the island yeah and uh, found this awesome awesome little shack um kind of so when i came back from a deployment when i would come back from you know two weeks of of walking through fort polk or fort stewart or wherever we had gone off to like dude i was i was at the beach and i'd go like sit on the beach and paddle uh and that was always a very very soothing, very kind of calming, uh, almost cleansing experience for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, then, then I left Savannah, obviously was up at Fort Bragg for a while and, uh, you know, I'd still paddle. I'd still get out. Shelly's got a, a stepbrother that we would do some overnight camping trips with and, uh, you know, trying to get him into the woods and, and, uh, give him some of those experiences. But, He's, he's a good kid, man. He, he's in his twenties now, but he, uh, he's funny. We did a camping trip out there one day and he was pretty exhausted from the, this about a, I forget how long that, like an eight hour paddle that day. And yeah. we get to camp and he's like, man, I wish I had brought my iPhone to, or something. No, he said, I wish I had brought my iPod to drown out all the sounds of this nature. And, you know, oh, I just wanted wow. to like grab oh, and shake. I'm like, dude, like, this is why we're out here, you know? Yeah. But, but we we had so yeah it was he had a good kid. What, what's uh, funny is is anyway I, like I go ahead sorry go ahead. I was um I was just gonna say it, it probably touches what with what you're going down, but I uh, obviously don't want to give away your guys's exact location, but I think for people that are listening that want to have that experience with paddling or kayaking, like Tybee Island or just the Georgia coast is like phenomenal. And, and I love the experience of just, you know, driving out there, having you drive out and meet up with me there and, you know, launching the the stand up and the kayak out there and then just seeing those little little islands, you know, where you could camp overnight. I think that's an experience in itself that everyone should experience. And, and not even that. It's kind of like you made a joke about it, but like Tybee Island is like the love island. Like literally people go there <laughs> and like propose, get married. Like I was seeing couples like on the beach there at night and it was just it's funny, like the energy that's on that island. Oh yeah, yeah, that's uh, yeah. The so that it's it's funny. The um, 
the shack I rented when I was, uh, I think when I got my E5 is when I started getting, you know, housing allowance. And, uh, I found this little shack out there and I say shack because it like used to be a tool shed, like a standard little tool shed. And then the owner, uh, my, my good friend, Mike and his son, um, decided to take on a project and convert it into like a little bungalow. So it probably measures around 500 square feet, maybe. Um, I'm 5'9 on a good day. We can palm <laughs> the ceiling in most of that little place, right? Like it's tiny. There's not a single closet, uh, one, one bathroom. Um, but they have a little sign on the outside of it that says Love Shack. Um, because it was kind of like as as the the owner uh, so this this couple owned the house and then as they built this little house on the back like as their kids would get older they would stay back there to have a little bit of a privacy from their parents right like we you're married you're adults we know what's going on just you can stay back there <laughs> and so like oh, and man like kids have been conceived in that little shack yes. like people have proposed back there um, you know Shelly and I fell in love. Uh, there like it's it's a known little and i think yeah like you said that vibe just kind of permeates that island well i'll I'll put it out there so obviously i told you but i I went on a date you know just before i met up with you the next morning to go kayaking and then i told you the next day and you're like oh i told you like tybee island yeah there's an energy to it you gotta gotta be careful when you're on tybee Yeah, no, I'm I'm actually very proud of my uh, I, I I have a good solid wedding ring can going on right now, um, which I'm pretty excited about. And uh, if for some strange reason I were ever to take my wedding ring off, like you would see a nice white mark on go. my finger, you know, because it's it's so funny because in the military, like so many times I would deploy, like you have to take that off, like. You know, sometimes like, well, you're giving your dog tags and everything else away. Like Mm -hmm. you're not wearing any of that shit. Um, But we all, I mean, it's just, it's so dangerous to wear a ring (laughs) with any of those activities that we're doing. Like, you know, you you get that caught up on anything and and something is going to give and it ain't going to be the ring. What is it called? Um, Ring dysplasia? Yeah. Oh man, that thing, it's gnarly when that happens. Yeah. Yeah. It's gross. And And I've been a medic long enough to have seen. Some, some bad incidents so i i would and, and obviously you're in the desert and you're outside a lot so i would come back nice and tan and, and fit and uh and then like yeah the satellite phone if you ever call it in like it rings off their server in hawaii so it rings up on the, you know, whoever you're calling you know it comes up as hawaii so then you come home like tan and fit and she's like uh were you just like in hawaii the whole time <laughs> um, but no like I'd, I'd have there'd be no tan where my ring was yeah, I remember she was always she'd always point that out to me. So now I'm I'm pretty proud of my ring tan. No, that's 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 incredible. So uh, um, to kind of kind of bring this full circle and and bring it back around, like to to what we're trying to do with these podcasts and the book and everything. It, as somebody who's gone through so much and everything, and 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 you've gone through a pretty incredible transition. Um, especially people who are struggling out of transition, what do you think would be your, your number one advice, you know, coming out of that, um, for a veteran trying to find their way, you know, their next, what would be your advice? 
Oh man. First, I mean, first and foremost, just accept that it ain't going to be the same. Like what, whatever you find out there is, is going to be different than what you experienced in the military. And if you're trying to recreate the, the experience, like it's just, it's just, it's just not going to happen. Right. Like, um, you know, you're never going to get those good old days back if, if, if that's what you're looking for. Like they're just, they're gone. Um, and then have a plan, like come up with a, a concrete plan of what you want to do. But, you know, I mean, this, and this is just me, but try and find something that makes you happy. And if it doesn't make you happy, then just don't fucking do it. Um, I think that's, that's one of the biggest things you owe to yourself. Um, especially after what you've been through as a veteran. Um, you know, and, and if you're like me, you probably get a little uh, moder- modest, moderately offended when people say things like thank you for your service because it's like no i don't really feel like i i served like you can say thank you for my sacrifice because you definitely made some sacrifices yeah uh as a veteran um you know but but you owe it to yourself to to be content and be happy because there's a lot of times where you you probably weren't very happy and 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 sometimes um maybe that was due to you know, combat. Uh, maybe that could have been a school. I mean, I've I've been just as uncomfortable, if not more so, in some school training environments than I than I have been downrange. And uh, you know, maybe that's the maybe sometimes that's the point of the training is so that combat is easier. Um, but either way, you've been through a lot, yeah. and you need to kind of come up with with something that that works for you, something sustainable. Um, and then I think one of the big things that, that people forget to do is, is some self-care. Um, you know, don't stop doing PT. Like, mm-hmm. I'm not saying you have to do PT to the level. You, know, you don't need to take an APFT or, or whatever that new thing they have now is. Like, and you don't need to crush a CrossFit wad every day. Like, just, just do some PT, man. Keep yourself active. Um, I think that does a lot. Uh, for your mind, uh, definitely good for your, for your overall well-being, your, your overall health. Obviously. Absolutely. We've, we've, we've proven that, you know, exercise can, can ward off some diseases and stuff, but, um, it just makes you feel normal. And it, and, you know, maybe that's that small connection you need to your past life. But I, I think exercise was, a, at least for me, that was, that's always been a big, um, you know, a big, I'm not saying you have to go out and run some ultra marathons or anything, but, um, maybe it's fun. You, you might mm-hmm. like it. Um, and then, uh, yeah, think about geography. Think about where, where you want to, to live. You know, like there's, there's a lot of people that just get out of the military and they stay right where they were serving because, you know, they have a friend base there or there's something in the community they like, but you know, you're not tied, you're not tied to that. Um, you know, unless there's something drawing you back to your hometown, you don't necessarily have to do that either. You know, you can kind of look at the, look at, there's a lot of opportunities out there. And, uh, and I think veterans can do, can do anything and they can be successful wherever they want to be. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as long as it's something that, that appeals to them, um, and, and makes them happy. Yeah. And that's, I think the most important thing, even for everybody, you know, uh, civilians or veterans just, as human beings is, you know, exercise, you know, eating well, you know, not going out drinking and spending money on frivolous things, being involved with the, with good energy of people around you, being in touch with the outdoors are just some of the things that we all need to be more responsible of keeping up with. And, um, 
I'm kind of curious as we wrap up this episode, what's next for you? You know, obviously you're working on a lot of things. You're obviously doing the kayak and paddleboard tours. Um, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you're also doing some elements of, of training and, uh, like in teachings and all that, but what's next for Aaron? Um, well, I mean, I, I think what, what's next is, um, you know, I want to keep trying to be a good husband. Um, and, uh, and I want to make sure that, that Shelly and I are having fun and we, we keep smiling every day. And, um, you know, and then, and then I think, uh, I, I'm starting to get involved with a couple of, of veterans organizations here. Like I never thought I would be a, a VFW guy, but, uh, you know, talked to somebody recently and, you know, I think I'm going to. I'm going to join and they're setting up a new post um, yeah, here in Savannah that I think is going to, you know, appeal a little bit more to the, to the SOCOM crowd, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and not that there's anything wrong with the conventional crowd. Like lo- love them just as much as the, the SOCOM people. But, you know, I think when it comes to like story time and uh, you know, some of the, the group activities that they'll plan that, you know, there might be some clashes with the other ones. So this might be an opportunity. Um, and, you know, there's a couple other groups locally that, that we've started um, doing some work with, you know, we, we've I talked to you about the beach cleanups that we do out here. So we're going to um, keep trying to, to do good, you know, yeah. not, not doing good. Like we're doing well, or, you know, we're doing okay. Like we're, we're doing good. Like we want to just try and do good things, mm-hmm. um, you know, help, help our community and the environment and uh, help some veterans. And then, and, you know, me personally, I, I really want to focus on being a, a good guide. Um, I'm kind of enjoying it. Um, and I think guiding is one of those things that, like, if I'd have known as a profession that it really existed, like, I maybe wouldn't have even joined the Army. I would have just, like, how can I do that? Like, nowadays, like, there's a lot of schools where you can get, like, an outdoor education degree. So you basically go to college to, like, learn how to rock climb or kayak or ski or whatever like i think that's awesome man and i really think that that's a community where veterans can excel if they wanted to and and all veterans um you know and and i think that some of the soft folks would be uniquely suited um not only some of the technical skills that they get um you know there's definitely some trend you know it, it translates you know and guiding in some cases is you know you're not just paddling right like your client and people management, client expectations, um, you know, group management, you're kind of herding cats, if you will. And I think you're trying to get a bunch of different people to go in the same direction, but you're trying to get them all to go there individually, but as a group, you Mm -hmm. know what I mean? And so think about somebody like, like a ranger school graduate that, okay, well you had to get a bunch of people to do something and they had just had their chow stolen uh, or, you know, their resupply didn't come through the ne- the day before they've, they're on like day eight of Florida phase and you have to like pull them together to get the patrol to a successful conclusion. Right. Like, so I, I you know, I definitely think that, that some of those folks in the soft community have that leadership ability. Yeah. Um, and they have some of those less tangible skills, like the ability to read people and motivate people. Uh, and then just learning the specifics of, of the different jobs, you know, whether it's climbing or hunt, hunting, you know, a lot of veterans like to do these hunts, uh, but why can't veterans be leading those hunts, you know, yep. get, get out and get into that, into that business. I think there's, um, you know, I'd love to see some, some programs and some tracks 
set up where, where veterans could have, you know, resources put at them to pursue those as, um, you know, career paths. Totally. Yeah, that's that's one thing. I'm glad you said that because I feel like a lot of veterans are figuring out like what they need to do next and where where they're going. But um, I I feel like every not every veteran, but I feel like majority of veterans can be successful in figuring their way in any organization mm-hmm. because they understand how to excel and be great leaders and just understand how to lead groups and and find like camaraderie, teamwork just drive to an objective to get something done. And uh, I'm glad you you said exactly that. And that is a common message I I feel like a lot of veterans need to continue to hear. Um, So I'm glad you said that. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think that for anyone out there listening, like don't be afraid to, you know, punch above what you think your weight is. It's probably higher than what you think it is. You know, you have attributes um, that other candidates don't have, um, you know, your, and, and, and this is where some of these veterans organizations come in. Like for me, I didn't want to, to access these veterans organizations because I didn't think I deserved them. Right. Like yep. I had this complex that, uh, well, it doesn't matter how high in the military I had, I had risen or, you know, like what secretive shit I had done. Like all that kind of goes out the window at the end of the day. You're just, you're just, a, you're just a number on a 214 um but you you have been through um a lot and you can reuse these veteran organizations for resources for job postings and when you get uh some of these these job postings or these net you know these networks right it's really about knowing people and these they can uh they can put you in touch with uh you know opportunities right and and those those people that are specifically targeting these different types of veterans, they know what that veterans bring into the table. They know what they've been through, and in some cases, they've 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 walked those same uh, those same lanes, and and so they know what that what that looks like. Yeah, um, yeah. The the you know, that that's the network net, networking piece that you just you hit on right there is absolutely paramount, and uh, like we all have that we talked about earlier, but that like separation complex where it's like, you know, I separated, I left a lot of people behind. So just leave it behind me. I don't want to deal with it. Um, but you also got to look ahead of you and there's a lot of veterans that have separated ahead of you and to try and network with them and see, you know, what's next for you and where can you connect and, and how can you find what, what your next purpose is and, how can you contribute to an organization and stuff like that? I think is is so incredibly important, and and it's something that I missed when I separated. That I'm I'm hoping to change that. I hope I can change it for just you know a handful of people, but that's I, I hope that's a trickle down effect for everybody. Yeah, yeah, abs- absolutely, man. And I think that you know uh, you know if, if you're looking for jobs, like go look for for jobs that. Um, are hiring veterans or, or, or make sure that you understand where you're working, that people kind of understand what a veteran is and what they bring to the table. Um, you know, I went to work for a place that, that actively looked for soft veterans. You know, they had a lot of marketing material that, that talked about Navy SEALs and stuff. And, and I learned that in the day, that's all it is. They, they themselves don't really know what a soft veteran is or was like, Mm-hmm. didn't even really know what a veteran was because you know they they talk about like leadership courses or like you know you're 
well, well, we don't really think you're ready. For, and I'm not using this on me specifically, just as an example, like, you know, say, telling somebody they're not ready for a leadership position. And I'm like, this person spent like, you know, my teammate, he spent 14 years in the army on a, on a special forces ODA. Um, you know, they were like an assistant team leader or assistant team sergeant. Like you can't even imagine the leadership training that this person has. They've, yeah. And not just the, the green beret aspect of that, but like they've gone through ELDC and, or I'm sorry, we call it warrior leaders course and the senior leaders course and the, or the advanced leaders course and, you know, BNOC and ANOC, what we used to call it, right? Like you, you go through these academies, you are in charge of massive amounts of people, massive amounts of equipment. Um, so much so that some, some civilian companies can't comprehend how like somebody with, you know, a public high school degree from North Carolina can be in charge of like a million dollars worth of equipment. Like that just shouldn't happen. But yeah. the military is funny that way, you know, like, People, people can get put in charge of situations and they manage it and they do it well. So they have, like you said, all those organizational skills. They have that leadership. And there's a lot of those untangibles that they bring to the table. Yeah, that's incredible. Well, Aaron, as we wrap, I wanted to, um, you know, personally thank you. And I know Dan, too, for taking the time to come on the show, you know, and, and having this episode with us tonight. I know we've been looking forward to having you on and obviously wanted to be you know, very cautious with how we do this episode, but I, I really appreciate you opening up more talking about your story and, and, and what you have going on in your life and, and how impactful that is for other veterans that, you know, might have their own issues, whether they're transitioning or they're still in the service. And, um, I just can't thank you enough. No, I, I, no, no, it was my pleasure. I, um, I actually, I really appreciated being on the show. appreciate you guys including me in the you know, in, in the book, I'm very excited for, for that, uh, that work. I think those are, um, you know, not as, I still don't always think my story is that great, but I, I, I am very encouraged by the other ones that are out there and I've checked out some of your other, you know, podcasts and there's just, there's just some amazing people that you all have spoken with. So, yeah. um, you know, ha having me on there is, um, you know, it's, it's, it's very humbling. I think wow. every single person is, uh, is amazing that we've had and we're going to have many more that feel the same way that you do that don't feel like they should be a part of it but that's that's where they're wrong and i think that everybody has a voice and they should absolutely you, you know let it out and, and be there to help others yeah and, and as i've said to multiple people before is i hope every other veteran is getting the same messages um every single story i've heard there's a piece of the story that that is aligned with my story that I can connect to, that I understand where the person's coming from, that I've I've maybe not gone through all the same struggles or whatever the case may be, but just you know, just understanding where a person's coming from, and it, it it's been incredible to hear every single person talk on this podcast and in the book and all of it. Do you mind if I say? Can I jump in? Do you mind if I say one more thing? Yeah, there, sure. Because you said you said that right there about you know maybe not understanding or not connecting with, with everybody. Uh, but, but having some part of that make a connection to it. Mm -hmm. And, and I think, you know, I, I have learned, um, you know, in the almost not quite 10 years that, that I've been separated. Um, it, a lot of what people experience is based on their expectations. Um, and I had a, a little bit of a complex, um, that while I was in a soft unit, 
you know, I was in a tier one soft unit. So like I kind of had this complex, like I felt like I had seen more combat than some other people or I, um, maybe I felt like more entitled mm-hmm. to the fact that I was struggling with issues. Cause like I had that, that those deployments, you know, those experiences to hang my hat on. Um, but you know, I, and I, I think one of my catalysts is like, I used to hear about, um, people flying ISR and like getting, getting PTSD for, and I was like, Oh, for a video game, like, Oh, come on, cry me a river, you know, like one of those guys. <laughs> but then I, when you really start processing it, you're like, Oh, this person like is stateside. They go to work on a shift and like they fucking drop bombs on people. And then an hour later, their shift's over and like, they're at home having dinner with their family, man. Like yeah. that's fucked up. Um, and then you think about like some of our logistics people, uh, you know, even you think about some of the Marines that are out there and they're just getting hung out in these outposts in the middle of freaking nowhere, limited resources, limited supplies, and they're just getting attacked left and right, man. Like you hear about some of these, these stories that some of these, some of these veterans have had. And it's like, wow, man, like, I feel like I've been on, like, literally hundreds of combat missions, but then somebody tells you about, like, one, and you're like, yeah, I don't even have, like, one single mission that, like, even comes close to the severity of, like, the one combat experience this person has, right? So, like, and then the other aspect is what were the individual's expectations going into the the deployment? Like, did they think that they were going to be on the FOB and, they're going to go to salsa night on Wednesdays at the NWR complex and they're going to go shop at the PX every day. Um, or were they a fucking ranger that thought, Hey, I'm going to go over here and I'm going to stack bodies for three months and I'm going to do like a hundred some odd deployment or a hundred and some odd missions within like 90 plus days. Um, you know, and we're going to get a kill count in the triple digits, you know, I think some, if your expectation is that that's what's going to happen, it might take you a few more of those deployments or a few more of those missions for that, you know, maybe some of that trauma to catch up with you. Whereas, yeah. you know, if, if you thought you were going to go sit behind a desk for, for a year or a couple of months or whatever it is, and then something happens, like, not really prepared for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but that doesn't lessen the trauma. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it's still a traumatic event. It's still uh combat. Yeah. And I, I think you said it exactly right. It's like, it doesn't matter your MOS or whatever is, is the, the shock, just the shock of combat overall um, treats people differently. And, and whether you, you expect it or not, like the, 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 the chemical and mental and physical reactions to it are so different for every person. And I even to myself and a lot of people that went into special operations, you know, have, have blinders on really. And you don't understand a lot of the other things that people go through because they weren't expecting it. And uh, it, it's an important thing that I, I not only hope that people who are listening to the pos- podcast, veterans, civilians, but also active duty members, people who are thinking about joining the military, they all process it and listen to it and understand that there are a lot of different elements to the military than what are in movies, books, TV, 
um, even in this podcast that you just, you're, you're not going to get until you're there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, again, yeah. Aaron, uh, Dan, and I both thank you for, for being on this podcast, you know, for, for sharing a little bit of your wisdom and we look very forward to keeping in touch with you and sharing more updates. <laughs> well, uh, wait, wisdom. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's gotta, a lot of wisdom yeah, there. Let's be honest. Come you got on, a little more than on, we do. Come on. <laughs> We'll end, we'll, we'll end on a funny note. <laughs> exactly. But uh, yeah, we'll definitely be in touch. And uh, it's just great to have you be a part of this book and to have you on tonight to share your story. And can't thank you enough, brother. Yeah, man, no worries. I was happy to be a part of it. And I uh, wish you all the best of luck as we move forward. All right. Thanks, man. We'll be in touch. Take care. All right, guys. Good night. Good night.